You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. Clint Eastwood, the man. Iger, the mountain. Deadly combination. Sanction, a violation of the law to enforce the law. Three shots have been fired at President John Kennedy. It was his job to safeguard the destiny of a nation. Today, America mourns the loss of President But at the critical moment, he was a split second too late. Now, after a lifetime of second thoughts and second guesses, Secret Service agent Frank Horrigan is about to get a second chance. Yeah. Frank Horrigan? Yeah. I've read about you, seen photos. You were JFK's favorite. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon... We are either talking more about our boy Eastwood or we're going corn mode. I still am completely unsure, but it's, it's going to be I a I forgot time. to tell Jamie about that. Yeah, we didn't so coordinate that. I'm excited uh, <laughs> either way, you know, so join the sleaze. Yeah, we decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Uh, Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for five years at this point. There's like 130-plus bonus episodes as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre films currently in theaters now. Uh, So if you haven't made the jump yet, patreon.com slash Lezoids podcast would definitely uh, recommend doing that. And speaking of which, we do have a bunch of shout-outs to give this month. Uh, We have Mitchell Camp who signed up. We had Mike Wave, we had Garrett Nicholson, Aiden Andrew Chow, Jordan Macapagal, Juan Morano, Cameron Watson, uh, Stephen Schwartz, Four Peoples, Nick Weiss, uh, Jason Reed, Eric Hawkins, Harrison Hart, R. Landry, Ben, Jim Alexander, Joshua McGonigal, Trevor Tremaine, Catherine Lizzie, Matt C.J. Barbado, uh, Joshua Lynch, Kill Wolfhead, a Amafi, who upgraded from $5 a month to $10 a month, and will be joining us for the monthly virtual screenings, which is going to be an Eastwood one this month, so yeah. look forward to that. Uh, Dylan Lamb, Vincent Portruca, who signed up for an entire year of the show, which you can do and get a discounted rate. Thanks so much for doing that. Uh, and we also had Patrick Sexton and Ami and Nathan F. So thanks so much to all of you folks for signing up. We appreciate the support there. Yeah, thank you. And that's your one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you were listening on either one of those platforms, uh, and I see the stats, I can see you right now listening on both those platforms, give us a good old rating and review down at the bottom. Helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners. And the very last plug is merch. If you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show, you can get that put on basically anything that you can think of. And you guys have thought of a lot of things. Pens, hoodies, notebooks, pillows, just a poster for your apartment. It is uh, in, at the link in the description as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com for anyone interested. But that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also as always is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. 
Welcome. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks over on the main feed would have heard from us, and we would have had special guest Brendan James of the Blowback Podcast on to discuss some feverish, paranoid 1980s psychotherapy psychodramas with a double feature of William Peter Blatty's Catholic guilt-ridden <laughs> quasi-satire, quasi-horror film, The Ninth Configuration from 1980, as well as Battlefield Earth director Roger Christian's debut film, the sender from 1982 which is a relatively minor but still pretty eerie and dreamy little telekinetic horror film trying to cash in on movies like carrie and patrick which were big at the time mm -hmm. and definitely something he should be better known for uh, alongside his production design for alien than battlefield earth anyway <laughs> yeah he, he really did get a bad rap for battlefield earth because uh, the, the sender is decent i would i would recommend it and, I, and we as we argue with brendan the directing is maybe the best part of the movie yeah you know like totally. it's stylish it's good uh, uh, totally. So if you haven't heard that episode, that was over on the main feed two weeks ago. Go back and uh, check it out. Uh, but then last week over on the Patreon feed uh, for the patrons exclusively, we did your guys's patron voted episode because once every two months we have you guys vote on the double feature you want to hear us talk about. And we did your episode, which you made Jamie watch an over three hour long movie. He was angry about <laughs> How dare it. You? He, he, he took the necessary heads and we moved on and we <laughs> went through the looking glass and talked to political assassination conspiracy thriller classics, both connected to the Kennedy brothers. We talked Alan J. Packle as MK Ultra slash uh, Lee Harvey Oswald Patsy Machine thriller, The Parallax View from 1974, so as well good. as Oliver Stone's fever dream epic, basically <laughs> JFK from 1991. It was a monster episode. And if you haven't heard it again, patreon.com slash these ways podcast. That was last week's episode. It was pretty, it was pretty nuts. We, we had the documents out. We were scanning. Oh yeah. Three and a half hours of just, uh, speaking the truth. That's what that is. Still shorter of an episode than JFK. So <laughs> yeah. I will take it. <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> uh, Yes, but yeah, that was last week over on the Patreon. But moving on to this week, and surprisingly actually lining up in terms of subject matter with last week's episode, we have a special returning guest uh, joining us, the uh, co-host of Chapo Trap House and Mr. Movie Mindset himself, uh, <laughs> Will Meneker. Will, how you doing? Wonderful to be here, lads. Uh, let's, let's get right to it. Uh, I just... I, I, with one of the movies today, I saw it not too long ago, so I'm going to need you to refresh my memory. What is the name of the dog in the Iger sanction again? Could you oh. guys just say that for me one more time? Just, just, just jog my memory. Here. Oh, no problem. Uh. It's, yeah, not getting canceled. <laughs> we don't have enough rep for that. It's, 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 it's a good time. We're going to have a good time talking about these movies. Today. Actually, it was very funny putting this episode together because when I reached out to Will, I was like, you know, it's been a while since we chatted with you and I noticed just watching your letterbox feed because you've become something of a letterboxed influencer in our, our time knowing each other. Uh, you were going hardcore Clint Eastwood mode uh, for a while there. So what, first of all, what was that about? I mean, other than living screen legend, of course. Um, and second of all, what two films from that Eastwood marathon are we going to be talking about today? Uh, I, I, I simply have to admit that the, the, the genesis for my Eastwood binge uh, is due entirely to the efforts of L.A.'s number one film critic, Lex G, and his Clint oh, yeah. Eastwood Light, yeah, the Clint Eastwood Lightning Round episode he did, where he basically did every... Every movie in like the first half of Clint's career, 
uh, you know, I love the Lex G movie podcast. Uh, he's an inspiration. Uh, and, and, and really, like, I realized listening to that episode that I had never seen the Iger sanction. And it was Lex uh, saying a line from Clinton that movie, or not a line said to Clinton that movie, where a woman says to, to Clint's character, you broil a mean steak, Hemlock. And from that moment, I knew that I had to watch the Iger sanction. And when you asked me <laughs> what Clint Eastwood movie should we do, I chose the one that I'd seen uh, most recently and was the most... Uh, let's just say there's, there's a lot to talk about in the Iger sanction. And then I wanted to uh, follow it up with one of my uh, favorite movies of all time, certainly one of my favorite Clint movies of all time, a movie that I remember seeing on TV no less than a dozen times when I was a kid. But it's in the line of fire. Eastwood and Malkovich facing off, but uh, why don't you guys take it away? It's the Iger sanction and in the line of fire. Yeah, God, direct. God, Clint. Yeah, it really yes, worked out yes. with us doing a JFK the week before too. So yeah, honestly, in the line of fire would have made a good pairing with JFK as <laughs> yeah. well. So and and the fact that both of them are also uh, assassination sort of conspiracy thrillers mm-hmm. a little bit as as well. The Iger sanction more of the uh, Bond espionage type, whereas in the line of fire has a little bit more of the uh, you know more presidential conspiracy thriller elements. But yeah, no, it's going to be very very exciting. And also talking about Clint Eastwood directing in the seventies, going back, and also a director we've never talked about on this show but who recently passed away and we should give a shout out to uh, which we will be doing uh, Wolfgang Peterson Mm -hmm. so I'm excited to uh, jump into it here but I think we're going to start things off chronologically we're going to jump into the Iger sanction and now Montana's either hurt or he's dead I knew that'd be death he's playing that way his lifeline in the hands of the assassin he hunted All right, we are talking The Iger Sanction, the 1975 American action espionage thriller directed by and starring Clint Eastwood and based on the 1972 novel of the same name uh, by one Rodney Whitaker, who also went under the pen name Trevanian. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm glad we're finally doing this because I, I looked it up and it has actually been over a year since we've talked about Clint Eastwood. We last spoke oh, wow. about him actually doing an episode on his sort of origins and his early directing gigs we talked about uh high plains drifter and outlaw josie wales because we really wanted to talk about when he finally kind of took control of his own image and the sort of myths around it in the western genre and started to play around with it so if you if you want to go back and hear that episode that's very much all about the legend of you know eastwood first getting spotted walking around the you know the 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 sets and everyone just being like wow that's a very tall handsome man do you think he would ever <laughs> be an actor and eventually you know getting bit roles in like the sequel to the creature from the black lagoon and getting the co-starring on rawhide and all of that but the gist that i want to bring up from that was this great quote that we found from eastwood very early in his career when he was doing the sergio leone westerns where he basically said and it defined, honestly, his career as as a director as well. Uh, I wanted to play with an economy of words and create this feeling through attitude and movement. It was just the kind of character I had envisioned for a long time. Keep the mystery and the allure, uh, everything in the past. And it came about after the frustration of doing, you know, rawhide and Western TV for so long mm-hmm. that it became this idea of how can I grow my presence in the imagination of the audience through, you know, style and through look. And I actually... 
before we uh, when I was looking for a copy of In the Line of Fire to do this episode, I ended up finding an old 70s profile from Look Magazine. I want to just bring up for a second up at the top because uh, there's a quick passage in it that just kind of sums up his screen appeal. Uh, and it's the profile guy writing he dr- that Eastwood drove a police issue Plymouth to the cafe with a tombstone seriousness on his ruddy face with wide, sharp cheeks like the polished blade of an axe and the enormous shoulders that would give him a tough fit in an airplane hangar. And he was frisking the room with his eyes like a cop trying to figure out which patron has a time bomb. Like this writer is getting stoked (laughs) thinking he's in one of his movies just sitting across from this guy. Like that's the level of magnetism um, that Eastwood kind of has as as a presence. And I like going back to when he started directing himself because you can really feel the control that he had over that image and what he wanted to do with it. Now we are going to be talking about probably one of the silliest possible variations of it only because he was offered bond at one point in his career. And I think it did kind of become tantalizing at a certain point that maybe he could have tried doing it. And it's very funny. Like this is the movie, the Iger sanctioned say we're talking about is probably closest in spirit to his other goofy espionage. Eastwood movie we've done Firefox, which was like oh, yeah. him doing the cold war top gun Maverick shenanigans. Um, but uh, I can't remember. Yeah. Was it as um, like silly as this? I sort honestly. Yeah, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. <laughs> it, it almost felt like a bit of a sequel. It even has like the the neon red, uh, right, yeah. you know, uh, room with the bad guy in it and everything like that. Yeah, because I, I uh, guess this was based on a James Bond spoof. That's right. I, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, the Iger sanction is, I think, supposed to be like a spoof of James Bond itself. The original novel is, yes. Yeah, yeah. And this kind of goes with it. There's there's some, we'll get to the details, but there's some weird things here where it's like there's there's a lot of a serious tone, but then outright just comical tone too that gets a little bit strange, but um, it, it's it's definitely captivating, I guess. This is, yeah, yeah th- this is a weird one. And I think you guys have uh, uh, set it up quite quite uh, ably. <laughs> like I watched this movie, like this is, this is an American stab at like an American James Bond character mm-hmm. with, uh, Clint, Clint Eastwood in the role of uh, Professor Hemlock, John Hemlock. And instead of being like, you know, an uh, MI6 agent, he's like an art professor and thief who's like also a button man for an albino Nazi. <laughs> oh, right. and, and like, okay, here's the, here's the thing about the Iger... Here's the thing about the Iger sanction that, like, I wasn't quite prepared for because, like, uh, you know, once again, kudos to Lex G for, like, uh, alerting me to this large gap in my uh, my Eastwood knowledge. And the thing is about Eastwood is, like, you know, screen legend, God Eastwood, he does, you know, he does come in for some criticism of being sort of, like, in his films and his screen presence, sort of an avatar of, like, uh, reactionary white male racism and misogyny. And, like, that never really... Mm-hmm. Uh, felt appropriate to me until I saw this movie because it is it is, <laughs> yeah. it is everything it is everything that critics who complain about uh, Eastwood are they're talking about this movie and basically none of the other ones I mean like yeah, Dirty yeah. Harry does not have shit on Professor Hemlock the, sh- the stuff that he said the, the shit that he says in this movie is uh, not just say I would not just say dated but is like out of control it's out of yeah, no, like there, there's some stuff in here and we'll war people up for it. Like it's genuinely pretty offensive and indefensible stuff. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's and it's funny because the as Jamie mentioned, like the material was 
intentionally written as a parody of James Bond. And so like the guy was making that being like, well, yeah, what if this guy was like super racist and super right. sexist? But, right. but, but because Eastwood is involved and because Eastwood took the gig seemingly as an opportunity to shoot the really incredible stunt photography that mm-hmm. he got in this film, so much so that when he was originally looking to get into making it. I think he originally asked uh, his longtime collaborator, Don Siegel, who did like Escape from Alcatraz and did Dirty Harry and The Beguiled and everything with him because he was like, I kind of really want this to be like a very show-off action picture yeah. uh, for for my audience. And, and he, he wasn't fully sh- convinced that... This, like he oh, even knew the script was kind of off too. It, it, I think he mentioned himself that he's like he's going to hope that the action sequences and the the great climbing uh, choreo- uh, the, uh, <laughs> the the climbing footage that he gets is going to make up for the kind of shortcomings of the narrative. Um, so he he seemed to have an idea already of what he was handling, I guess. Yeah, which is just so bizarre that he plays the material completely straight. He doesn't uh, yeah. play it like any of this is a joke. <laughs> not yeah, not well, not most of it. That's why when the the moments that happen that are clearly spoof, um, they're they're very jarring, and they they do kind of make it so it's it's funnier at times. Some of some of them are are kind of just way over the top and very dated but there's there's other ones um like later on when they're doing a climbing there's a specific one where he does like a zoom out and everything and it's completely comedy um and it, it's directly after a com- very dramatic and intense scene so it's there, there's just things like that all the time that pop up in this that are are jarring but yeah they're, they're still entertaining i guess but he knew yeah. about them for sure Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the marketing of this film was very funny. They were very much like I, I found it in the old trailer that Jamie might have even played up front. It's like Clint Eastwood, the man, Iger, <laughs> the mountain, a deadly combination and sanction a violation of the law to enforce the law. Like they're trying to get like the dirt, you know, a little bit of the dirty Harry as well as the bond. They even yeah. have, a, you know, making him an art professor. You have a little bit of like those old serials that would inspire Indiana Jones. And yeah, stuff I was going like to say they well. have the scene where it basically they have everything except for the um they don't have the girls closing her eyes and saying like i love you on her eyelids or anything like that but they basically no, have they, the whole because it's because it's like you know it's 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 eastwood in the 70s so instead of like uh the 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 charming 1940s uh like archaeology class where the girls have i love you written on their eyelids uh the film <laughs> be- essentially begins with clint eastwood being propositioned for sex by a co-ed for to get a passing grade on like the art history midterm or whatever right and <laughs> And, and of you course, know, and Professor a, Hemlock, Professor Hemlock, he's a gentleman. Like he's not the kind of professor that would sleep with a student for a no. grade. He'll merely just slap her on the ass and say, "Get your ass home and study," <laughs> <laughs> which happens uh, twice in this movie, where they have like just and the second time it's just a random girl in a bathing suit comes up, stares at Eastwood, and that's it. And then his his friend Ben says something like, "You know, we're talking," smacks her on the ass. They do another close up, and she walks away. And it's just like it, they they do it uh, yeah twice and it's um it's actually also in a move uh, one of the James Bond movies with Sean Connery I can't remember which one but he he does the same thing where a girl comes up and then he says something like uh, not right now honey man talk and then smacks her on the ass and he walks and you know makes her walk away 
And I was like, I, I didn't know. I couldn't tell if they were trying to spoof that directly or if they were just do kind of just doing the same thing and trying to channel like the exact same energy. It, it was hard. Yeah, to but, tell. But, it, but it's one of those things that you can tell in the material is very playfully being like, well, you know, exactly like exactly the way that Will framed it. Like he wouldn't do that, but he would, you know, he would yes. still kind of, you know, do that. And it's, it is funny, too, with Eastwood. Like he he's playing you know, again, he's meant to be sort of nerdy, but also very like he's all gray wool blazers and he's got like the yeah. turtlenecks and the and like the pedophile glasses that he's the rocking. Whole, <laughs> the whole Professor Hemlock character is like so it, it's so odd because like if you think about it as like what is the American response to like Sean Connery's James Bond? It's like, OK, like he's he's pretty cool, but like he's basically He's like a, a art thief and a college professor. He is like an art history professor who's also an assassin and like an elitist also, who has his own all, collection too. Yeah, yeah. He's not not interested <laughs> in displaying it in a museum. He just wants to look at his paintings that he steals or otherwise acquires through ill-gotten means. But like, he really is like even more of an asshole in a low life than Sean Connery is as James Bond. And oh, then yeah. like on top of all, if if that CV isn't good enough for this character already, he's also one of the world's best mountain climbers. <laughs> and like, and like, and like the, the weird thing is like two thirds of this movie is like, is like it starts out like a James Bond movie, and then like the second two thirds of the movie have like almost nothing to do with like international espionage or an assassination <laughs> yeah. plot or anything like that. No. It's just no, training. It, it is yeah. training for and then climbing uh, um, the Eiger, the Eiger Mountain, the Eiger Sanction. Yeah. And what yeah. I find interesting which, which, too Which when, we find out later he didn't even really probably have to do because it was such a dangerous climb that all of these people were probably just yes. going to die doing this climb regardless <laughs> yes. of him, which is one of the funniest touches in the whole thing because, because like yeah. it oh, opens with like... Yeah. Men in trench coats and fedoras having secret meetings and exchanging microfilm. And you're like, oh, this is very Bond. You know, you got like little murder set pieces and like the wide angle lens shots of, you know, a spy, you know, slitting another throat, uh, another spy's throat. And he's getting meetings with like this old colleague named Pope, played by G Gregory Walcott from Plan 9 from Outer Space, um, who is telling him that he needs to go back and see his ex-Nazi boss, the Dragon, played by <laughs> Thayer David. Um, that name and I awesome. like that in this early stuff, he is, they're setting up very much a, a story you could imagine Bond being a part of, where he's, you know, he's refusing the call, and he's being like, I'm kind of done with, you know, all of this wet work. And But Eastwood is still playing it with, like, a little bit of that dirty, hairy attitude, where oh, yeah. he's making, like, Take smart no ass quips but that like which but with just that like tough guy venomous delivery that he yeah. kind of excels at which isn't really the way like bond would be more charming about it he's kind of just an asshole yeah and like when yeah. he goes to that meeting with the dragon and i want to I, I do want to like reiterate he's like a, an albino ex-nazi he's like literally shot like he's a, a, a universal monster yes and you honestly kind of feel bad for the names that eastward calls them, where he's just like <laughs> you know he's going into his blood red evil espionage uh, office and they're you know he's like I, I wonder what kind of stuff they plan in there and I think he said I thought it was rather humorous myself a spy network being run by a bloodless freak who can't stand the light or cold <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's absolutely I, ruthless to everyone that he comes in encounter with <laughs> I, I do appreciate this movie, though, um, being honest and making it a key part of the plot that, like, you know, the CIA was just like Operation Paperclip and just put all these fucking Nazis in charge of <laughs> our intelligence apparatus. And, like, it's not yeah. it's not much remarked. It's just not much remarked upon. You know, like, the dragon is like, he's a bad guy, but, like, he's still Clint's boss. 
Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, well, and, and and when one of the some of the other agents try to get a little bit like, don't you care about like your country anymore? And you, they even give Eastwood like a little mono, a little sort of like monologue back where he's like, you think it's so terrible that the other side has a germ formula and it's against the Geneva Convention and that they stole it from us? What the hell were we doing with it? You know, he's like, yeah. as long as we have dragons and popes working for us, like how bad can the other side be? Which is also just funny names for the characters that make that line kind of funny too. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Um, yeah, but but yeah, so like the, the main thrust of it is that he is brought in um, by this dragon to come in and sanction uh, these these two men, even though he is through with the wet work, he's through with the killing. He just wants to collect his art that none of the unwashed masses, uh, as he says it, are can appreciate the way that he does. And it's funny that the use that the way of blackmail is we will tell the IRS about your collection. Yeah. <laughs> They're just like, okay, well, we we won't tell the IRS and we'll pay you $20,000 if you uh, do this mission. And very quickly, he's kind of like, yeah, I guess I don't want the IRS knowing how I paid for this art collection. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll do this mission. And it is immediately followed up by him killing off the first guy in a bizarre scene where Eastwood is scoping out his target by knocking on his door and pretending to be a gay dental floss delivery man. He was doing like the full flamboyant voice impression and everything. I've never seen Eastwood do anything like yeah. this before. Yeah. L- listeners, I mean, like that. This movie will hook you in and get its get its claws into you very early on in the movie, where you see Clint Eastwood do his his patented one time only, never to be seen again, <laughs> gay guy character. And like, they, oh, it doesn't stop there because it follows it up by including like the most mincing stereotype of a gay man ever portrayed in a movie. But not before Clint himself is just like got a candy gram for you. Like, you know, we want some dental floss. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, my it, god, it's, it's wild. And this is and th- and this. Is before and this is even before they introduce the uh, sexy black lady spy whose name is Jemima, right? And don't worry, they they, they get away with it because they have a whole conversation about how uh, like how ridiculous chan- how ridiculous it is and what would the chances of that be? And I think her answer Eastwood's is something- quip back to her is unreal, where he's like, "Oh, you're Jemima Brown. Well, I'm Uncle Ben." <laughs> Un fucking real, and he and, and what's the other line he gets? He's like, oh, "Was your okay. mother ho- mother horny for pancakes?" Like just <laughs> just the most boneheaded replies. Yeah, yeah, and even her like she says something like her mother just liked being ethnic or something like that. Like it's just the most bizarre dialogue I've I've ever heard, um, and it's it's trying to play as comedy, I suppose, in in that sequence, but. Um, you know, I mean, like very, we're, yeah. we're, getting, we're getting to like in, in a in a in a in a romantic moment between him and Jemima. Yeah, this is their meet. Say, too. He, yeah, he says there. I mean, like he meets her on an airplane, and like a dragon has sent her to like check up on him or whatever. But like you know, it doesn't stop doesn't stop him from seducing her. And like they're back at his you know art art chalet. And like they're having a <laughs> glass of wine in front of a fireplace. And I forget what the setup is, but he says to Jemima, "You never know." <laughs> Sometimes people do things they thought they'd never do again. Like rape, for instance. Yeah, I thought I'd give that up. And it's just like, like what the he, hell like, was that? He, he, <laughs> like it's played for laugh. And like, I just love the idea that this is like the American answer to James Bond. who's like yeah. the cool suave. So he's like a little bit thuggish, but he's always, you know, got like the, the martini and he's playing Baccarat and like Monaco or whatever. But this guy, Clint Eastwood is just picking up stewardesses and then making jokes about raping them back at his house. 
Yeah. It's- yeah. And, well, and, and while like the, the, the jazzy lovemaking music is kind of playing they're in front of the fireplace, like this is meant to be like a very charming sequence. That's meant to be a charming line where she yeah. comes deeper inward to him. That's and it's just, yeah. it's, it's just horrifying. <laughs> Oh and I was going to go back to something you we mentioned earlier about like his art collection, the fact that he's an art professor. We'll see this again in, in The Line of Fire, but I really like in, in Clint's movies, he is always um, uh, tempering his um, tough guy bona fides with like, by giving his character always has some sort of artistic uh, affectation or interest or hobby. Like, you know, whether it's playing jazz music, being mm, yeah. a painter, being an art collector, like he always has these highbrow tastes and that he's like larding into these tough guy roles. And I think that's just like that. I think that is a personal touch from Clint, you know, giving giving a bit of himself to the viewer as like something to sort of, I don't know, to juxtapose with this like asshole tough guy persona that he's so that he's so popular for. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, and uh, Jemima Brown, I can't believe I have to say that. We're going to have to keep <laughs> saying that over and over again. Uh, her, her, you know, being hired by the dragon to come in, and, and he thinks it is to seduce her and to steal all of his materials back because he doesn't only agrees to do the one sanction, he doesn't agree to do the second sanction, the more dangerous one where he has to climb um, the Eiger Mountain in Switzerland uh, to go and kill his second target, uh, which he eventually agrees to do because they find out that the agent uh, who was killed uh, in the opening scene was actually a close uh, friend of his and that they and also they say, and look, we're closer to identifying the killer. You know, we know he's a mountain climbing enthusiast with a limp, which Eastwood is like, well, good, I'll kill a few thousand men with sore feet then. Um, (laughs) And and he he does uh, eventually, you know, agree that he'll he'll climb the mountain. But he's you know, he hasn't done it in a little while. He's a little out of shape. So as <laughs> Will mentioned, they spend an entire what which is basically an hour of the film. It's a long time on like on like what it amounts to a at, training at George, montage. George Kennedy's uh, Alpine mountain climbing school. <laughs> yes, with his old pal Ben, played by George Kennedy, uh, who's also awesome, and I'm assuming in this film because they had some great chemistry together in Michael Cimino's Thunderbolt and yes, Lightfoot, yes. Uh, and and both of them became actual friends um, on that film, which is why he brought him uh, brought him along for this. And yeah, George Kennedy picks him up, and he's like, "Come out and hang out in my volume, uh, Monument Valley, you know, sort of like a climbing school." Uh, and they got to film it actually at Monument Valley, which you could tell Eastwood was ecstatic to do because. That's where they film so many of those classic John Ford Westerns. And he gets to use their landscapes in the same way that he did. And he actually gets to climb the landscapes as well as like mm-hmm. run around with like a sexy native girl. Who, yeah, <laughs> oh, boy. Who We're not getting into the, uh, the second or third insane stereotype in this movie is uh, George Kennedy's mountain climbing assistant who is a Native American woman who is quite well endowed that uh, gives, <laughs> let's just say, gives Professor Hemlock some needed uh, motivation to really commit to uh, training to climb this Iger Mountain. Yeah, it, yeah. It exposes herself to him so that he will be motivated to climb that mountain despite the fact that he is, you know, Eastwood, I don't, I don't know exactly how old he is around this time, but, you know, he's he's still, he's not a, he's not the youngest guy. You know, he's like 45 or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's, he, he's got to get physically fit and she needs to uh, in, inspire and, and motion for him, you know, to, also, to we get, push we get it. To the, we get to the next round of um, Clint's insane and hilarious war crimes against various people. But like, okay, so the, the, uh, the, um, the Native American lady is like running him ragged, like over all these trails or whatever. And, you know, 
he's kind of out of shape, so he's gassed and gasping, and she just like keeps going, and she's like, no, like more, you know, like more training. And then he he drops some great one liners on her, like, God, I wish Custer won. And my favorite, probably, <laughs> Jesus. The, funniest, probably, probably the funniest line in the movie when she just like laps him on some on some uh, mountain trail. He goes, "Fuck Marlon Brando." That's the best one. <laughs> I, me and my brother. Been a, been a topical that. humor. We, I was dying at that. Yeah, you just like it's so and, like, random. And, and, it's in this beautiful <laughs> shot where he's like running through water and it, you know the water's spraying up and he's got there, there's like these mountains behind him and he's just like screw Marlon Brando. <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh my god. I, re- I rewound it. I think I watched that three times. It, it's so funny. Yeah. Well, well and, and, and there's also a, a sequence later where he has sex with her. And after having sex with her, he has to punch her because she's paid to like drug and kill him with like a big old needle after the sex. <laughs> yeah. like, it's so yeah. insane how fast this stuff happens and like the kind of relationship he has with all of these like bizarre stereotypical sort of like caricatures that that peppered uh, the film. And like this sequence, like, this section of the film is also where we're introduced to his former colleague who betrayed him in Asia is all we really know about his backstory. <laughs> That's all. And he happening. is a, he is a uh, gay agent named miles who has a dog named. <laughs> it's the, uh, it's the most, you know, the most commonly used slur for a gay man that refers to the, uh, a bundle of sticks tightly wound together. The Roman fashion. Yes. You can, uh, you can uh, do the, the That is literally the name but, like, of the they, dog as an excuse it, for many like, characters to say it out loud as possible. And we're introduced to this dog <laughs> humping Eastwood's leg and with miles saying, Oh, be careful that he doesn't rape you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the second or third rape joke of the of the film. Yeah. And it's like unbelievable. I, I, it's like it's called, like the whole middle third of this movie. They're just like hanging out in Monument Valley. Like George Kennedy has some like sort of cool like swinging motel where there's always like young people hanging out and drinking and Eastwood's there trying to like, you know, abstain from dr- drinking drink and sex while he prepares to climb a mountain. But like there's just so much I, I just like even though it's so odd, like I really appreciated just like how much just hanging out there is in this movie. And it's just yeah. like it's Clint and George Kennedy. And they're just, you could tell like they, 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 you know, you could tell they get along great in real life. And they're just chopping it up, having a great time, you know, uh, just doing some some light uh, war crimes to uh, various um, ethnic and uh, sexual stereotypes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, and, and and that's what's just so interesting is that you'll you'll go from a scene where you're you know you're genuinely getting kind of you know involved in a little bit of the chemistry between Eastwood and between Kennedy and you know like Eastwood does have some you know he he could have been in an espionage you know you know uh, actor in, in in this time especially um, and and especially when you get into the climbing sequences like even in the Monument Valley like before the Iger stuff like this section of the film is climaxed by a great like climb and talk scene between Kennedy and Eastwood talking mm-hmm. oh, through it's the so mission. Good. While while he really climbs the Monument Valley and even swings his way um, uh, across it, and it's just incredible landscape imagery, like uh, obviously amazing real stunt work that Eastwood yeah. is actually doing, I mean, and actually shooting on zoom lenses and stuff like that. Like there's, it's, an ama- it, there's an amazing shot of like him and George Kennedy, just the two of them sitting on top of one of these like incredibly thin but uh, astonishingly tall mesas out there. And it's just like, yeah. it's one of those shots where I'm just asking like, how did they film that? 
Yeah, yeah. There's also a really amazing, and I'm pretty sure it's him in, in the shot where they, they show the mountain um, and they just keep doing a, a zoom in. And I think they're using a helicopter and eventually it shows Eastwood actually climbing up like two ledges and he's kind of pressing his feet up against one side and his back up against the other and shimmying up. And it's just like, it's it's incredible cinematography, but for him to actually do that too. And there's a ton of things where he's like, he's actually um, dangling from from one rock to the other, just in the middle of nothing. Like it's just, it's it's really unbelievable stunt work that he's doing. Dangerous the, stuff, the climbing, as we know. All the, all, all the climbing stuff in this movie is fantastic. And like yeah. it gets back to like, you know, uh, Josh, like uh, the, the quote you read at the beginning about like his his blade-like face and broad shoulders and just Clint Eastwood as a physical mm-hmm. presence. Like, he is, like, very much he is, he is doing that climbing himself in a lot of these scenes and just, like, it, there is a physical credibility to him as a mountain climber and, like, the, like, the way he moves and, like, I don't know, I just thought it, I, I, I thought it all worked great, like, all the mountain climbing stuff. Oh, absolutely. And, and Eastwood like made it his mission when he took this movie. He was like, I'm not using a stuntman because I want to film this on a telephoto lens. I want to zoom in. I want to see the landscape and I want to zoom in. And when you zoom in on the landscape, you see that that's really my face and that I'm, you know, really doing that. And in order to do that, like behind the scenes, he was taught by a mountaineer and documentary filmmaker named Mike Hoover, who was, you know, uh, he also hired uh, eventually after teaching him how to climb um, to actually shoot the most dangerous maneuvers that they did shoot um, on this film because the dude had actually filmed a documentary of himself at Yosemite National Park uh, doing uh, a climb in the 70s. And there was a great anecdote by Hoover uh, in an interview where he, or in, a, in an Eastwood biography where uh, while doing one of their first climbing sessions together, Eastwood looked up at him and said, I don't I don't think I can make it like this is like crazy. And he said, well, Clint, you really don't have much choice choice and <laughs> apparently that question pissed him off so much <laughs> that that he did the classic eastwood thing where he he pulled in his chin as uh hoover writes here <laughs> gritted his teeth and with absolutely no technique at all just blood and guts his way up he <laughs> yeah. was like no, no skill brains. no brains just <laughs> just pure muscle like i thought it was like such a a great um line and and it also resulted in him you know actually when they eventually go to the Iger mountain, like actually filming it. And we'll get into some of the set pieces that they do there and what happened as a result of some of those set pieces. But this is like, like in terms of, as we've mentioned, we spent a lot of time talking about the really silly bond spoof stuff, which is definitely one of the main sort of contradicting elements where Mm -hmm. he's playing this ridiculous character, ridiculous situation, series of sort of expository hangout conversations sandwiched (laughs) in between pretty offensive scenes meant to parody (laughs) bonds, racism and home homophobia and and all of this but the other half of the film and the thing that i think is more interesting about it is like just eastwood's very traditional action thriller craft it's very sturdy it's very stunning it it looks great the lens work is awesome the stunt work and the physical stakes of it like it's incredibly dangerous and suspenseful and and exciting and and gorgeous um and and, you know the the movie becomes a test like how much of the bullshit can you withstand for some genuinely jaw-dropping filmmaking uh on on display yeah and it's it's obvious that eastwood felt the same way because it seems to me as soon as he starts to um 
uh, shoot the the mountain climbing and all of those scenes, he almost completely forgets about like the the actual assassination that has to take place and him trying to figure out as a character which one is the one he's supposed to kill because that's supposed to be a whole thing. And, <laughs> I, I, I was going to say I, I forgot. Yeah, I forgot we didn't even mention that. Like he again, he doesn't know the identity of the person that he's yeah. meant to be. Uh, like assassinating. All, all he knows. All he knows is that there's like a four man team that's going to be put together to do like this Iger climb, which is like one of the most difficult things to, uh, you know, one mm -hmm. of the most difficult feats you can do in all of mountaineering. And like, according to like Dragon and his contacts, like the, the double agent that he's looked that he has to sanction, that he has to like assassinate is, yeah. is like, is, is one of these guys on the team. And it could be the Frenchman, the German or the Austrian, but he doesn't know which one. And then, like, and then he gets in here because, like, George Kennedy, like, his climbing buddy is, like, the coach of this expedition. So, like, he's putting together this crew. Like, the American, they get him to drop out so Clint can take his place. But, like, it's sort of like when, when they get to, like, the actual Switzerland part of the movie, then it becomes this question of, like, how is he going to suss out? Like, like which, which of these guys is really his target? Or, like, the, the, or, and, or which of these guys knows that he's, like, who he is and what, why he's on this climb in the first place? Mm -hmm. But, like, you're right. Like, that kind of... <laughs> That whole like uh, you know thrilling plot spy plot line really does take a back seat to like what yeah. Clint is clearly interested in in this movie or why he did the movie is is climbing is mountain climbing and filming uh, people climbing these actual mountains in the Alps which is like yeah which is incredible stuff but it's clear yeah he, it's he, very, he 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 went he went cruise mode on it like he was straight yeah. up yeah. like I just want to show my uh you know my audience of viewers that I am willing to do something absolutely insane and have all of you pay to come and watch me do it and see the effort that's kind of on display and you'll have to sit through the uh, boneheaded and amusing <laughs> time all capsule the, all the racism <laughs> misogynies homophobias <laughs> yeah really Dude, that line you have an incurable disease and you're too cowardly to kill yourself yep. that he says to the gay dude like <laughs> just it, like it's just like i understand if anyone just completely checks out of the movie like there's there's literally there's just no defending a line like that or when he like beats up his like buff boyfriend or whatever yeah and it's just like you kind of just have to you know grit your teeth eastwood style yeah, and, 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 and get your way through it because on the other side of that same sequence you're gonna get that incredible helicopter shot of, of of Eastwood and Kennedy who were helicoptered up to the very top of Monument Valley and are hanging out drinking an Olympia beer together up there and it's just it's an incredibly satisfying like image and and shot and like it, it works exactly in the way that it's intended and it's just it's crazy how much the movie still manages to work despite how much the film seems to be shooting itself in the foot in a way <laughs> um, which which which, which Oh, go ahead. I like the, you know, with with all of his uh, all the war crimes uh, that he plays for laughs in this movie, like yeah, like there there is a certain element of it that like is I guess like supposed to be satirical of James Bond, but it's just the way Clint delivers it is that he's just he's just so seething and venomous all the time that it's a little hard yes. to see the hue or to see like that like this uh, that he's like not like that they're playing this up to like as sort of a parody of this secret agent character, but it doesn't come, really come across that way. It's just him seething and spitting venom of just like these nasty lot of these nasty one-liners yeah which yes. is i think why like I, i'll just mention it now because i think that's why when something legitimately comical happens and there's like a, a very obvious comedy beat for instance when um he there's that one scene where the guy is dangling because he gets some rocks that hit that hit his head and he gets knocked out and so clint eastwood or hemlock is is holding him and trying to uh 
to carry his weight, and he's he's asking for the other climbers to help him, which he eventually gets, but one of them doesn't uh, do it, and I can't remember. It's like a... Ray- it's the German... Yeah, it's, it's the very cocky German guy who's the like, I'm the German leader now. The lead, I'm the I'm leader. leader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's and, like okay, and, it's a cl- classic, classic, uh, classic uh, th- three character study here. You've got uh, the German guy who's an arrogant, cocky asshole. You've got the French guy <laughs> whose wife is cucking him more or less openly with the German guy. Then you've got the Austrian <laughs> guy who's like, ooh, like, mm. see, he's the wild card. He's the best climber of all of them. But like, that, that's the guy who I immediately keyed in when I first saw this movie. But like, oh, like that's he's the double agent right yeah. he's got to be because like him and the Clint have the easiest him. rapport they respect each other the other two guys are kind of played as like comic foils or, like one's an asshole and the other is like you know just like a bitch like he's just yeah they're setting up a betrayal <laughs> but you just yeah, don't yeah. know which one <laughs> yeah and so he the guy one guy doesn't help him and so he, he when he doesn't after this incredibly intense scene where someone almost dies and they play that very seriously he does this thing where he's just like Frey you asshole and he like keeps <laughs> the going and then not only that but they do a big zoom out of the mountain as if like everyone can hear him and everything like, like that it's, it's echoing just, it's a classic yeah. comedy beat and I was just like that is just so much more jarring now because of everything else that we We've seen that's been trying to pull itself off as comedy here and there. Um, yeah, even yeah. E- even more jarring in that specific scene that you're talking about is they really <laughs> filmed out on the Eiger, like very famously treacherous. The the uh, translation of the mountain's name is literally ogre in German, <laughs> and. They uh, started the production by doing all of the most dangerous shots with Hoover first, having Hoover do the shooting and, you know, the mountain climbers do the the climbing that they were doing, uh, including that rock slide sequence that Jamie just referenced where one guy gets in a lot of trouble and there's this incredible POV shot of like the rocks practically falling on the camera. Mm hmm. Well, a guy died getting that shot. Yeah. Um, oh, one of the young climbers wow. was crushed by a boulder as Hoover was shooting the POV shot. And Eastwood apparently felt so like terrible that it was like day one or day two. And they basically killed one of the mountain climbers um, that they basically they, they considered shutting the production down and just saying that that was it. Um, and uh, supposedly uh, uh, the other climbers kind of persuaded him into, you know, all of the mountain climbers who are here. We we would have all done this anyway. We know the risks of this trade and uh, I believe you know, that considering like just documentaries that I've seen of people with this mindset it, it seems like they would be on board with that like, yeah, like that, that, that free solo guy yeah, would have been totally they're, they're, cool being on Clint Eastwood's team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these guys, yeah, these guys are mountain climbers. They already have a fucking death wish. So, and if you <laughs> yeah. if you give your life in the service of God Eastwood, then you go to to uh, mountain climbing Valhalla for uh, all of eternity. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh man. Yeah, Apparently yeah, but but, but that guy, again just, just speaks to like the the intensity of what they were shooting and like the fact that Eastwood is kind of keeping up with these like actual climbing enthusiasts who are yeah. doing one of the most dangerous climbs that you could possibly do in this time. So it's just, it's really interesting to see that. And and it has an effect on, you know, the actual filmmaking that you're, that you're watching, like those mountain vistas and that, that amazing telephoto zoom that they will do where you can, you know, just really see Eastwood's face being like how this is like a fucking crazy uh, <laughs> height level that I'm at. And, or yeah, you know, it, it'll also shoot like a beautiful sunset up there with them or like a, a cloud or weather formation that's starting to take them over or a sudden rock fall like that like it's just it's very very gorgeous and scary yeah and what i love about like the, the whole the whole climax of this movie where they're doing this uh, they're, they're attempting to do this ascent to the, the summit of the eiger which has never been uh, attempted before it's like 
incredibly dangerous. But like, the setup is that like that Clint's character, John Professor Hemlock, was supposed to, or at least like, a try as best he could to suss out which of the three guys was his target before they <laughs> before they start climbing this fucking mountain together. And it creates this scenario where like these three guys now like. The four guys, sorry, these four guys, like, their lives are, like, all in each other's hands. Because, like, they are just, like, they're literally roped to each other on, like, a cliff face. And, like, one mistake is death. And it sets up this, uh, this, like, like I said, like, James Bond would never do this. And, like, like, the movie really allows you to think and, like, sets up this very nasty proposition that Clint made, like, his character may just decide that the easiest thing to do is kill all three of these guys and cover his bets. Which would be yeah. very easy to do in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just ju- just cut cut one of the ropes while they're all hanging off him yeah. while he's the leader or something like that. There's even a great moment where Eastwood wakes up at one point in the middle of the night, and one of the climbers is just with a knife cutting his frayed end on his ropes with his switchblade. And we just see this through like an image of the hand and knife entering the frame, almost in like a split diopter framing while he sleeps, um, which is actually later mirrored as well when the same hand later reaches into the frame to stop him from falling. So, you know, he is building like, you know, there's some vocabulary of, of, you know, sort of suspenseful thriller stuff, um, taking place in here that, that he's doing well, but it is funny when you do realize that it's like, you know, it really doesn't need to be this individually scary on a sequence level like this. Cause he could just cut the rope and they're all gone and that's it. Job jobs all done. And we also find out about what I think it's like halfway through the set piece. We get a little bit of exposition delivered to Jemima where they're basically just like, yeah, all of this, by the way, is a ruse. Like this is all just a <laughs> spectacle planned by the dragon to make it look like, like the microfilm was actually useless information. And we want to have Eastwood get some, revenge killing so that the Soviets think they got something more valuable than they did by killing our spy. Right, because like, so, like, the Americans it's, like, don't it's retaliate, so... <laughs> the Soviets will know that it was all phony to begin with. So they gotta, they gotta, yeah, they gotta send this guy out there to possibly kill three people for no yeah, reason. So, so, so this like giant gorgeous spectacle that Clint Eastwood is shooting is like like actually all just like for show, um, yeah. which which is something that I don't think that Eastwood really thinks about when he's shooting the movie, but is like the closest thing that we have to like actually revealing that this is all meant to be satirical, that like this entire mission that he is really excitingly depicted is really actually hollow and pointless if you actually sit there and think about it for two seconds. But that doesn't stop Eastwood from making it like, you know, this incredibly exciting thing to watch on a moment to moment level on who's going to make it through this passage of, of the mountain and, you know, or that bit where they, uh, they get him, uh, they, they get hit by like that flash freeze ice storm and they have to oh, start yeah. climbing their way down. And there's a great bit in this where they actually, uh, ha- cause one of them dies cause he gets hit by the rock and gets concussed. The, the French and, guy, um, the, 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 the French guy yes. goes out first. Yeah. Yeah, well, and then they also have to drag his corpse around with them, which yeah, is just a wild yeah. image, watching them having to, like, hang his corpse off their backs while they're pickaxing and, like, boot maneuvering away around the around the rock. At one point, they end up, like, using one of them as, like, a sled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And like, you know, the movie is willing to like let you let you believe that uh, Professor Hemlock is not going to do the honorable thing and just kill all three of these guys. But then after the French guy dies, it's like him, the German and the Austrian. And like they've given up going to the ascent like they're already fucked. And like it's only about yeah. survival. And then it really does become like this very harrowing survival thing where it's just like I, I, become, I think it becomes clear then that Clint is not going to kill either of these guys. That Like it is just about survival. And like like. Uh, like they're they're all like they're just trying to get down the mountain, but as luck would have it, both the Austrian and the German die <laughs> on the way down. So oh, problem solved, and, it, it, and he doesn't an actively incredible he doesn't, huge he doesn't, dummy <laughs> falls of them oh, flying man. off the cliffs, dude. It's oh, sick. and the Austrian guy slides down that mountain, and you see that dummy go into that like just abyss like crevasse. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. You're, I'm just like, yeah, you won't catch me doing any of that mountain climbing shit. <laughs> no yeah, fucking terrifying. chance. Yeah, and it is really, and like, you know, and, you know, he, he does behave with honor. Like, you know, he attempts to save both of their lives, but, you know, uh, it, all, it all works out in the end. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And there's also a even funnier stunt. twist. You get the even funnier oh, yeah. twist after all of it. Yeah, because, because there's this amazing stunt that he has to do where mm-hmm. Clint oh, it's has incredible. To, uh, like, he has to cut his safety line over a drop of what looks like to be, you know, over a thousand feet so that they can uh, pull him up by the line that they actually toss to him, that George Kennedy tosses to him, realizing that, you know, he needs he needs help now that all the other guys have have fallen, which is a genuinely crazy stunt that Eastwood did really do. And they got these amazing POV shots of like his feet, like looking down while he's hanging there over that yeah. like giant ravine. And I'm like, like, the, like the George Kennedy and his crew are in this like incredibly narrow like rail tunnel that's just been like cut or like some sort of like uh, like mining shadow. It's just like this incredibly like small cut in the mountain of like a man-made tunnel and mm-hmm. there's just like an opening that's just out into a clear like just drop off and Clint is yeah. just hang is just dangling in front of this like door <laughs> in the mountain way and then it was like so carved sick. into the side of the mountain and he has to cut his safety line like while they like it just yeah it's it's nuts it, it's really yeah. it's really good it's cool yeah, too like, like Clint has to the... really do that. And, and also is uh, in that moment is when he's realizing that Ben, the one who's saving him, right. George Kennedy, that he's limping on the way yep. to do it to him. And he's just like he remembers what the dragon told him, that the target he was after was part of the climb. George Kennedy, technically part of the climb, is the guy who was planning it. And also he's he's got the limp. And so it, George Kennedy was the person that he was meant to assassinate, yes. not one of the fellow climbers. And it's a moment that. Eastwood plays really well because it's on one level he has to be incredibly scared of like the physical stunt that he's actually doing and also be like hurt by this betrayal basically at the exact same time when he's kind of piecing those things together and also it does add in a sort of emotional complication to it as well where it's like you know he he has to hate and kill this guy in a way but also the in terms of his immediate survival, he needs to trust this guy to pull him up on the rope when he cuts his rope. And so it, it is actually like a pretty strategic little moment where you get these really conflicting feelings out of it. And they do have a conversation about it after when they both get down there where they go, you know, you took a chance coming up that mountain. And he was like, you took a chance cutting that rope. You know, like <laughs> either one of us could have had a chance to kill the other one. But we are going to maintain this level of honor in this trade that has no honor. So they they do part ways with a respectful truce, knowing that, uh, you know, just yeah. because the job compromises their morals don't doesn't mean that they need to pointlessly add each other's bodies to the uh, the pile for their bosses. Yeah, like the the big joke of the movie is that he doesn't kill George Kennedy. He's just sort of like, well, yeah, he actually fair. doesn't like, kill yeah, the yeah. one person he was hired to kill. <laughs> 
And like the whole thing is a front, like the whole thing is a, a farce that doesn't need to take place. And he doesn't do the thing he's actually assigned to do, which is kill this double agent. He's just like, yeah. oh, well, you know, like he's my friend. The joke becomes <laughs> obvious when you describe what happens in the film to someone else. What's so crazy yeah. is that Eastwood just doesn't film it that way. He films or it as if he way. was <laughs> like he was actually doing a tryout for like directing a Bond movie. <laughs> yeah, I think Dragon yeah, calls exactly. it that. He's like, you killed all three. That's extravagant. We like your style. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, actually, that's fucking sick that yeah, you the way awesome, that you did dude. it. We love you. <laughs> well done. And all three of them seem like legitimate accidents too. perfect. He's the best <laughs> agent we've ever had. <laughs> that was pretty funny, yeah, dude. I think that that's all, that's almost like an Austin Powers gag that oh, he accidentally sure. kills all three of them and get everyone's like, "Wow, you're the best agent ever." <laughs> we hope to work with you again. Yeah, oh, so man. so good. Uh, but I think if we are pivoting towards the uh, reductive rating round over on the Iger sanction, I think that you know, like th that is what ultimately, like that ending and the like the sort of conflict, like. It's, as soon as we do get out of like that second act where all the worst stuff in the movie is and you get into the last like hour of of the movie, essentially, like it is like just a really compelling thriller that and, and a really absurd thriller that does, um, you know, seem to be playing with the pointlessness of its kind of depiction of, of, of the tradecraft and everything like that. So as a result, this kind of lands in, in, in the three territory for me, where I think that, you know, Eastwood's screen presence and direction basically overpowers most of the obvious things that are <laughs> wrong with this movie. Um, and, and, you know, does actually lean into, you know, like the, the crazy stylish sequences with the albino Nazi who's like barely kept alive in like blood transfusions in a neon red room and he is doing this like pointless spectacle revenge killing and I think a lot of that stuff is just really strong it's just be warned to anyone who does watch it you do have to sit through some pretty tired uh, attempts at comedy it's a pretty uh, bizarre and offensive uh, stereotypes in, in, in order to get there but yeah, I'm just really, really impressed with with the craft and, and especially the stunt work and the climbing and the mountaineering footage. Like on that basis alone, I think this is worth watching for everyone uh, un undoubtedly. Um, but uh, yeah, you do get some weird whiplash uh, by the fact that it's meant to be a parody and Eastwood is basically just directing this as if it's a very, very normal, very effective um, thriller, especially when we get into the... Uh, the, the climbing and the the massacres near the the end of the film and even the emotional relationship with uh, George Kennedy, I think, is, is good. I think in, yeah, in, I like Eastwood's him. instincts were right in casting Kennedy because that is yeah. one of those things where their genuine friendship does come through. And I think he even said that that shot of them on top of the Monument Valley is like a career highlight for him, even if, you know, the film isn't his favorite film that, that he's made. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this is a. It's a it's a strange time capsule, but I do like it. I appreciate a lot of what it's doing, but it's just the satire is probably the weakest part of it for sure. Um, I, some of it works. I would say a lot of it doesn't, but uh, there are still some highlights. Uh, once he gets to the mountain climbing, the hollowness of that, the mission satire stuff is the stuff I think that works. All of the attempts at <laughs> parodying Bond's. Uh, yeah. social attitudes are a little bit more <laughs> troublesome. Yeah, yeah, because even when they're, like I said, even when they're doing the parody, it seems like they're just kind of doing exactly what 
Bond did, like the the ass pat, for instance, like that that's straight out of a Bond film, and they don't seem to be saying anything other than doing exactly what Connery did in that moment too. So it's it, it's strange <laughs> when it when it tries to do some of the satirical stuff, but as soon as it gets to the mountain climbing um, stuff, it's amazing. The footage is incredible. It's a it's awesome that Eastwood, you know, just went cruise mode and and absolutely did like most of the stunts, if not all of it. I mean. I can't think of many shots where his character is on screen and he's his face also isn't so it's it's very impressive um and uh yeah I would say check this out for for the 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 footage itself of just the amazing mountain climbing and the stunt work but uh you probably won't take to a lot of the satirical elements of it it's it's yeah. uh you know, it's definitely a unique curiosity that only could have came out in 1975. Yeah. So even just on that basis and alone. Some of the jarring you know, moments did make me laugh out of almost shock, but it's definitely still something that a <laughs> lot of too. people would be turned off by. I, I understand yeah. that. Um, but yeah, there, there, there is an element of like, you, you really don't hear any of this kind of <laughs> language or humor. And so there is a jarring element to it that can work in that sense but it's still not like the jokes are funny it's just you're 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 shocked i guess i don't i don't know uh, but yeah, yeah uh, uh, i'll give it a strong close, three honestly <laughs> i had fun with it it's just there's a lot weighing it down i guess yeah i uh i i co-sign everything you guys said I, i'll i'd rate this about a three as well i think the things that do work in this movie greatly overpower the many things that don't work yeah and <laughs> yeah, like a yeah. lot of the uh a lot of the real real stinkers and the real like dated fucking humor and uh social attitudes on display in this movie despite the fact that they're barely satirical or like it's hard to discern what the attitudes of the filmmakers are i know clint likes per, like playing an asshole but yeah uh, I, either you yeah either, i was like we've I, talked I, about high plains drifter where he is playing yeah. <laughs> intentionally a monstrous rapist in that film yeah. and like it's the point of the movie is that he is like a terrible you know weapon in a way that yeah. the community uses uh but yeah it feels like it's not being deployed as intelligently here we'll say <laughs> right. yeah I'll, I'll just say like either either you will be repelled by or if you're evil like me um, absolutely rolling at the um, <laughs> hilarious <laughs> big bigotries yeah. and jokes on display in the first two thirds of this movie but like I said there, there is enough that is really great about this movie that I think um, offsets the things that are truly um, absurd and terrible <laughs> <laughs> so I'd give it yeah. a solid. I'd give it a solid three as well. It's like yeah. it's not. It's 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 not. It's certainly not like it's 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 gonna. It's not gonna be anyone's favorite Clint Eastwood movie. But no. if, if if you're at Eastwood head, like I said, I was very glad that I checked this one off because I thought I thought it was like a, it was a, it was a big blind spot in the in my Eastwood movie watching. So I was uh, very glad to have uh, seen this one. Yeah, and he directs Absolutely. the hell out of it. So. Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's always been like uh, part of that profile that I I read from him was saying that at the time that he was doing it, he was sound designing Escape from Alcatraz, and he was literally like in his house in his own editing suite, like making choices about the ominous amounts of reverb on the footsteps in the prison on that film and stuff like that. So there's mm -hmm. like you know he's very very skilled and uh, with with the craft, and you can definitely see that coming through here. And the last thing I wanted to mention, because somehow we didn't mention it, uh, John Williams did the score for this film. Yeah. And it's pretty spectacular, actually. Like, awesome hearing him riff on, like, you know, doing the sort of classical mystery and suspense stuff in, in there with the exciting, bombastic, like, pop action stuff. But there's also, like, this nice little, like, romantic motif about, like, the beauty of the climb while that's happening mm -hmm. sometimes when the sunset vistas are coming up that will turn tense or scary on a dime when 
when the when the danger kicks in. And yeah, I just thought that was both of these films are scored by like two legends. And I just was kind of surprised that, you know, John Williams, this has got to be like the, one of the only like spy films he ever did. So it's just very funny that that's one of the only ones he ever did is this Clint yeah, Eastwood this one. one where he's just the most racist, sexist man you've ever seen. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, definitely worth a look, uh, for anyone who is getting caught up on their Eastwood watching and that I think is going to wrap it up for the Iger sanction. We're going to be right back and we're going to be continuing in the Clint Eastwood mode, but moving on to two decades later into the 1990s, we're going to be right back and we're going to be talking about in the line of fire. Stick around. What happened to you that day? And this time he'll be ready. I see you, Frank. I see you standing over the grave of another dead president. That's not gonna happen. Clint Eastwood. In the line of fire. All right, we are back and we are talking In the Line of Fire, the 1993 American conspiratorial assassination action thriller directed by Wolfgang Peterson and once again starring Clint Eastwood. And this is our first time ever talking about one of the gods of the TV dad movie, Wolfgang Peterson. So I wanted to (laughs) start us off by just talking a little bit about uh, Peterson, the German director most well-known for his World War II submarine film Das Boot from 1981, which got him six Oscar nominations and a career in Hollywood studio effects-driven movies. He has a very good eye for artificial soundstage gorgeousness, really nice sets and matte paintings. Like, early on, he was a very sturdy studio journeyman for whatever trend they were chasing. Like, uh, I watched a ton of his stuff this week to kind of get a little bit more familiar. And I, I did, like, movies like Enemy Mine as well as The NeverEnding story which are Mm -hmm. sort of in a similar realm to movies like the dark crystal or like ridley scott's legend like very like 80s children fantasy with the makeup and the world design and music Um, and definitely that those elements are like better than some of the narrative qualities of those films i would say especially (laughs) like the makeup in enemy mine is like really really great for for the the alien that dennis quaid crash lands on on his planet and learns not to be racist against him by teaching his son what American football is. Awesome. <laughs> That's great. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the Never Ending Story, obviously, very, very famous film. Uh, most, I think, for the, most, I think, known, honestly, probably for the theme by synth legend uh, Giorgio Morador, who did the score for Scarface. Um, and, and, and everyone just kind of trusted him on the, this effects-heavy stuff because of the eye that he showed that he had for that boat set on uh, Das Boat, which is one of my favorite titles to say because it just it forces you to say it with the accent which is just <laughs> das boat. Das boat. Um, and yeah and and uh in in my opinion that is up there with like john frankenheimer's the train as like one of the great movies about ground level best, uh, wartime <laughs> mechanics of history uh one of the best vehicle based films you know trains boats you know any any movie set in all of them yeah, yeah. yeah they're great they're all good. Yeah, but 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 any movie that like 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 the train or like Das Boat, if anyone even knows more films that are like that, but like that whole element of like the labor and the procedure of running these like steam oil covered machinery and like the sweat and blood of these guys who really like pump it in. And that film, uh, one of his regular DPs was Paul Verhoeven's DP, uh, Jost. 
Volcano, uh, who in that film for Das Boat, you know, it's like a borderline documentary attention to detail on how to run that ship and all of the mm-hmm. cameras like ducking through the compartments and watching the the water leaking in as they all start drowning. And, you know, like it's just it's a it's a really impressive piece of visual craftsmanship and even the sound design is pretty impeccable too when the crew needs to like listen to opposing ships for their tactics or they hear the the rickety you know cries of the ship that's you know that's had damage done to it they need to diagnose it um but eventually uh he would combine this skill that he had for this visual maneuvering of space and creating these worlds that are these great analog effects and when the popular trends moved away from like kids fantasy and into things like uh, he, he went back to his action roots with like Das Boat and he became something of like a dad core classic filmmaker of the first order. He got into like 90s thrillers really fast, like what we're going to be mm-hmm. talking about today. But he also did one that I watched that was like a Diet De Palma film called Shattered, which is one mm-hmm. of his better movies and I won't spoil it for, for anyone, but it's like it's Tom Berenger as like a rich dude who gets it gets into a car crash and he thinks his wife might have like double indem- indemnityed him essentially and he <laughs> lost all his memories. He to reconstruct his face and identity and like put his life back together memento style with a private dick who's working out of a pet shop played by Bob Hoskins. Wow. It's like just <laughs> wow. one of like the strangest movies I've ever seen. And it has like a, a, an incredible twist ending to it. And so, so he got started. Apparently Clint Eastwood saw this movie and liked this movie, according to Peterson. And that's why he said that he, he, he asked him to do on it. It wasn't, uh, uh, well, I guess because Outbreak kind of came out after the fact and same with like The Perfect Storm. Those all, you know, Eastwood actually kind of gave him his Air Holly, Force One. His, yeah, his bigger Hollywood career that got all those movies. Maybe, yeah, Air Force One. Will, Let's you're go. a big Air Force, Air Force One guy, right? Oh, absolutely. Air, Air Force One is great because like it is pre 9-11 is like uh, the perfect distillation of the neoconservative worldview. <laughs> Except like they, they couldn't anticipate that it would be uh, Muslim terrorists in the 21st century. It was just back to the Soviet Union again. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> but, you know, it, like, 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 like Das Boat, you know, a movie that's just set on one, uh, like a, a, a means of conveyance in, in the air. <laughs> the entire movie yeah. is uh, on and a as plane. silly as it is, it does kind but, of. But it's not just any the... plane. It's not just any plane, the greatest plane in the world. <laughs> that's right. America. Well, that's the, that's the <laughs> funniest part. Clint Eastwood, apparent, <laughs> Clint Eastwood apparently is the one who got Harrison Ford and Peterson a ride on the real Air Force One, which they awesome. eventually used to reconstruct their sets and models from. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And as silly that's, as that's Air Force right One there. is, is it, it does kind of dive into like the the kind of a Hollywood procedure of what they would think, you know, going through the Air Force One would be where they're calling people and they have to get, uh, like, if they have to get recognition that it's the president that's actually calling them. They have protocol, all of that. I mean, it's obviously silly, but he does surprisingly dive into kind of the uh, the details Dude, of the it's, procedure. it's a movie where the president of the United States is literally John McClane. Like, it's <laughs> yeah, like, it's yeah, like yeah, the exactly. silliest premise for a movie and, and that's and, ever and, been made. And it's, oh, yeah. it's, double, it's doubly silly, because when I recently rewatched Air Force One, I remember seeing that in the theaters, just like pumping my fists in the air when like the American F-16s. Get off my like, plane. Yeah, get off my plane or whatever. But like Harrison Ford in that movie is like the, like not just like a, an awful Republican president who wants to like literally announces in the first scene of the movie that America will declare war on any country in the world that like vaguely threatens freedom or human rights. But uh, that leaving that aside is like makes the, the worst decision of any president ever 
to stay on the plane to save his dumbass family, immediately <laughs> imperiling the national security of the United States by directly choosing to involve himself, the president, in a hostage situation that is <laughs> ongoing. Yes. But and it's a movie that movie only exists because, because the president <laughs> needs, yeah. needs like a physical situation to make his ridiculous foreign policy and like express it, like literally muscle his way into the various neo-communist terrorists who have taken over his big, beautiful plane. <laughs> but of freedom. What's, what's, what's incredible about that film and to credit Peterson is, and which will bring us into in the line of fire is that his just, his control of yeah, it's sturdy. like just like like on a on a visual level and on a physical level, just the sus- the clockwork suspense action sequencing, and it will make you believe that the president could get into various gunfights and hand to hand combat situations yes, absolutely. Uh, with with terrorists. Like the, the the squib work is always great. The casting is great in so many of Peterson's movies, and like I watching Air Force One, it's like. One of the most ridiculous movies ever. And I'm totally with Donald Trump where it's like Harrison Ford <laughs> on the plane. He stood up for America. I'm like, absolutely. At 100. <laughs> I believe it all the way by the time you hit the end, end of and that I, film, even though it feels like it has an extra set piece that it maybe doesn't need in the last and, 20 yeah. minutes. And I, and I appreciate him following up uh, in the line of fire with Air Force One because it's sort of like. In, in the line of fire, it's just like, oh, like Secret Service agents, like Clint is cool and badass. Like he's, you know, he's saving the president's life. But like, nah, that's all. Like, we need the president to save his own life, you know? Like, fuck the Secret Service. <laughs> right. They're actually in on it in Air Force One. So it's like not good enough to just have like cool, badass Clint Eastwood save the president's life over and over again. It's like, no, the American president saves his own life, goddammit. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah, which which does finally bring us to In the Line of Fire, which is a huge turning point in Wolfgang Peterson's career. Maybe the defining one, honestly, in terms of his switch to like official studio thriller guy given big Hollywood budgets, real eye for the action craft and can work with big stars. I mean, shit, this guy would later go on to do Troy, which was a movie carried essentially by like Brad Pitt and Eric Bana and uh, Brian Cox and it written by, I always forget that movie is also written by David Benioff and got him his like game of Thrones gig as well. Um, but, uh, in the line uh, of fire was his big chance to team up with an American screen legend. And I, I, I did actually uh, listen to a, a very lengthy interview with him where he did that thing that all European directors kind of do. And when they get involved in a project like this, because they grew up kind of watching American movies and they see them as like myths in a way. And he was just like, dude, the idea of just working with Eastwood and getting to use his face and getting to use him <laughs> walking through a room. He's like, I, I, he jumped at the opportunity to do it. And apparently Eastwood specifically asked for him because he loved Das Boat and he didn't, for some reason he didn't want to direct this one himself, even though he, I guess maybe he was just too busy because it's worth noting. This is Eastwood at like kind of a second peak of his career. Cause you could argue like the seventies is probably his big peak. Uh, but the nineties was like, it was like a Eastwood is back moment. Like that's Mm -hmm. when you, he, he did white hunter, black heart and unforgiven right before this movie. And right after this movie is a perfect world, which is like my other favorite cost performance outside of JFK and Bridges of Madison County was like just around the corner as well. Yeah. So this is like Eastwood at the peak of what he could get made. He could do whatever the fuck that he, he, he and, wanted. And like, I, I think it's great that he, he chose Peterson for this movie because like you can tell Clint, Clint really just, he understands movies and he's got great taste. And like the, uh, the, the match of the two of them in this movie is perfect. I regard in the line of fire as like one of the, if not like it's in the conversation for like the best 90s thrillers right 
and yeah. and like yeah like i mean this this and, and here's the thing to keep in mind about in the line of fire is that like you're right this this did launch like a second clint eastwood renaissance uh, like a like a, an eastwood revival and this movie came out in 1993 and it is a testament to Clint that the entire, really, like, the entire point of this movie <laughs> is that he is way, he is way too old to be doing any of this shit. <laughs> yeah. And, th- and then, my, and, like, my man just kept, has kept doing movies for the last 30 years. He's still doing years. that now. He's doing 30, yeah. for 30 years after <laughs> In the Line of Fire came out. It's the 30-year anniversary of this movie this year. And still smuggling you know, drugs. He's still, he's going still at it. He's still at it. He's still having threesomes with hookers. He's still fucking uh, <laughs> getting proposition for sex by uh, uh, seductive Mexican ladies. I mean, Clint is just, he, he cannot be stopped. But like, yeah, like to see a movie where it's like it made in 1993, where like a, a big major plot point over and over again is that Clint is just past his prime and too old <laughs> to be like running, running next to a presidential motorcade. Is great, yeah, but 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 that's why his performances around this time are some of his strongest. Like that's why Unforgiven and why Bridges in Madison County are as powerful as they they are as well. And and it's why in the line of fire, like this ended up being a three Oscar nominated film. Which you look kind of look at this back, and you're kind of like it's like a kind of a bit of a like a pulpy cable movie in a way. But it's just it's so well made by everyone that like every like and and Eastwood was being taken so seriously as a you know as as a artist at this point in in his career especially and but behind the camera as well and that, yeah it really it really elevated this one which uh we should get into for anyone who who hasn't seen it i actually picked up the brand new 4k blu-ray of this which looked amazing by the way but they actually have the best written log line for this that i wanted to read out here which is frank horrigan clint eastwood is a tough veteran secret service agent who has been plagued by feelings of guilt and failure since the assassination of john f kennedy and as the agent on duty that fatal day he feels uh, he should have reacted more quickly and taken a bullet for that president and 30 years later the cur- current president of the united states is entering a re-election campaign following a number of death threats he has been called back in to assist what should be a routine re- routine search operation however when he discovers that a professional assassin and master of disguise which is true mitch leary <laughs> played by john malkovich an incredible performance so good. um has been tracking the president. The assignment turns into a deadly game of cat and mouse. Yes. And Leary uses his knowledge of events in 1963 to mentally torture Horrigan in the asu- <laughs> in ensuing psychological duel, a duel that will eventually put Horrigan. Can you guys guess? In, in the, the line, line of fire. Of fire. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, we're talking, we're talking, we're talking, this is A plus, A plus cat and mouse games going on in this movie. Oh, oh it's and, so, you know, we, so like, good. So I was blown away by how good it. this was actually. I was watching for the first time. Oh God. I mean, like that's yeah, a treat because like this is truly like one of my favorite 90s movies. And look, like you can't talk about this movie without talking about Malkovich because Malkovich yeah. comes Unreal. through with one of the best villain performances like I've ever seen in a movie. He is totally so on he him and Eastwood are like are like the perfect pairing of like <laughs> Clint Eastwood representing this kind of like ramrod like hyper macho like like gruff masculinity and 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 Malkovich coming through with this very like louche kind of like androgynous sort of like like weirdo pervert guy soft that is like spoken the, yeah it's just like the perfect contrast to Clint he's like, the, it's like I think like the best villain that, that Clint Eastwood has ever had in one of his movies that's said maybe Gene Hackman and Unforgiven but here before we get into the movie I got to just talk about we got or Gene Eastwood. Hackman in absolute power yeah, yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> I just want to throw that in there for a second yeah. the, the, the rough trade president Bill Clinton <laughs> the rough yeah. trade president yeah 
Um, but before we get, before we get, like, we t- Malkovich, we'll, we'll get into Malkovich, but I just want to run down just off the top of my head the rest of the cast of this movie, which is just like. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's just. It's ridiculous. It, this movie is so loaded. You've got John Mahoney. You've got Fred Dalton Thompson. You've got Renee Russo. You've got fucking Steve Railsback. You've got Tobin Bell. You've got Dermot mm-hmm. Mulrooney. Or is it Dylan McDermott? <laughs> I always forget. It's Dylan McDermott. Uh, it's Dylan, Dylan McDermott. It's Dylan yeah, McDermott. But I'm, I, I'm, leaving some, I'm leaving some names off. But man, like John Hurd. John Hurd in like a, a small cameo role. But this movie yep. is stacked top to bottom with like 90s yeah. greats. Yeah. Well, and, and, and this is an expensive movie, $40 million movie. Like Eastwood could really bring in the numbers for Peterson. And apparently the concept for this movie had basically been around in the uh, screenwriter who wrote a spec. So this is a classic like a guy wrote a spec script and it changed his life overnight kind of story as, as Peterson put it, um, where this guy, Jeff McGuire had this idea for the, I think the script in the eighties and he was inspired by the real 60 minutes interview that the real secret servant agent, a secret service agent, Clint Hill, who was the guy you can see in the Zapruder film climbing over the trunk uh, of the car in that footage, basically like breaking down on 60 minutes that he didn't take the bullet. And okay, so he was very, let me ask you this. Did Clint Hill, the real Secret Service agent who watched Kennedy get his head blown off in front of him, did he spend another 30 years working in the Secret Service like Clint Eastwood does in this movie? Because it is pretty funny <laughs> that they didn't fire him. You know, like that he's just... Yeah. Sort of, uh, <laughs> it's true. I mean, honestly... You just like just bad vibes, you know, just having yeah. him around the office, you know? Definitely just like, oh. did. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I thought about it a little day. bit yeah. during the film. You, I was you, like, you why know, does the, Eastwood <laughs> still have a job? <laughs> you know the single biggest failure of the Secret Service that like, the entire, like on a global level let's just keep him around as sort of a mascot you know because let's be honest most of what the secret service does is just counterfeiting so we'll just we'll, we'll let him do that yes. as, as you see in the very beginning of the movie with the great scene with uh jigsaw tobin bell where he almost gets his partner killed yeah <laughs> well, and he almost does it himself. Well, he, like he puts a gun to his head and pulls the trigger because, like, it's, it's, it's meant to imply that he, like, he like holds the gun in his hand. It's like a revolver, and he holds it in his hand for a second, and it's like meant to imply that he can tell by like the weight of it and of his palm that it's not loaded. And he just like puts it, he puts it to his young rookie partner's head, who has like a plastic bag <laughs> over his head, and pulls the trigger. <laughs> and then later he's even like, well, there could have been one bullet in it. And it's definitely played as like sarcastic, <laughs> but you can't really tell if he really no. knew or not, which is kind of funny yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Like, so this is, so this is like, you know, this is kind of a ridiculous character in terms of, and that's like the pulpier element that I'm talking about. Like, yeah, yeah. like the guy who was there when JFK got shot, that guy just doesn't have a job with the secret service anymore. Probably. Like, and, I'm just sorry to say, and this but Oliver Stone's attitude, like Oliver Stone has the oh, same eager sanction attitude where everything that he says to everybody, no matter how higher up they are, if they're his boss, whatever, it's a sarcastic comment. It's a gruffy little, you know, machismo moment where he's just one upping them. He never, like he never really has a lot of moments where he's, uh, you know, overpowered or anything like that. And, even and, amongst and also the leaders. It's the nineties, you know, so like his, 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 his mild sexual harassments of Rene Russo are in a way <laughs> lower volume than, yeah, uh, yeah. than, than professor Jonathan yeah, Hemlock back in the seventies. Yeah. Like he's being, you know, he's being he's like, he's playing his, the jazz his, piano for her, exactly. which yeah. he can really do. And you know, like he's leaning into like, Oh, I'm this like, you know, uh, old misogynist dinosaur, but like, actually yeah. I'm kind of like uh, my, his swaggy alpha charm just cannot be denied. So like when he's like commenting <laughs> on how pretty he's like, Oh, the secretary is here. Get pretty prettier every year and she's like actually i'm a field agent and he's like oh well you know blah, blah. 
So like, yeah, he's a, it's just, you know, it's Clint doing his, is like sort of a, a man out of time, kind of gruff, uh, gruff, a little bit dated persona. But in this movie, it's just way less like nasty and seething. Yeah, like I said, yeah. it's, like, it's just way less poisonous than it is in this back. Oh no, the yeah, there's, a, there, there's a lot more, again, at, at this point in his career, there's a lot more genuine sort of like weariness to the characters that, that he's playing. And there, and there is like a real aged experience on him that he, you know, it, it makes him well cast for this which which was made uh because all of because it's worth mentioning in connection to last week's episode oliver stone's jfk being the hit that it was they were like oh shit this is like what Ooh, the people want yeah, we're, get we're, some we're, more kennedy we're, content we're gonna, out there <laughs> yeah we're gonna fast track this thing but what, what what ends up making this movie interesting is that you know one it has just kind of a solid emotional base and kind of a cathartic arc for this you know, this fantasy of this guy who really wished this real guy who really wishes he could have taken a bullet for JFK. And like, how can we craft a movie around giving him that second opportunity? But then with Peterson, it is given like this actual kind of like pulpy thriller, really sturdy framework of a cat and mouse movie based around the dueling mirror image of two government service agents, one seeking redemption and to save a life and the other seeking revenge and destruction and, and, and to end a life. And as we've mentioned, played just by two incredible actors in very different registers yeah. and performances just like completely nailing it clint activating his too old for this shit like aging you know sort of sort of aspect lost out of time as we'll put it. it's a good way of phrasing it um and uh john malkovich who apparently just went hardcore method to play this like slimy stalker psycho villain <laughs> and you can tell he is just like locked in and 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 vicious in that in this film like that scene where we'll, we'll probably get into it but like that scene where he just like murders that bank teller who oh man oh my god she, she, she yeah. clocks and him for like flubbing a detail wrong about jo his fake jo Josh identity and, Jamie, and just like, like snaps their fucking necks that scene, like unreal that scene disturbed me so much when I first me saw too. that movie as a kid and like the way he's talking to her at the bank and stuff where he's like you have a very yeah. you, you have a very charming way about you and like and it's just like like Malkovich only does it a few, uh, Malkovich does it only a few times in this movie and it's like really effective when he does actually blow up and like showing it like this volcanic anger inside of him but like he's so quiet and like slimy mm -hmm. and just sort of like just like like oh like yeah it's just like just there's this like perverted louche um sophistication to him like that i said is just such a good foil for eastwood but man oh man malkovich like the movie would not work without malkovich because like i said like he is just such a good villain in this movie yeah, and it's because, yeah. too, like, the way he at least perceives himself, and he is obviously, like, an intelligent person, but there's this thing where he's he's kind of, like, yearning for the respect of Eastwood's character the entire time. Yes. And so th th there's always this thing where he's, he, he constantly brings it up where he's just kind of like, I'm never going to lie to you. Like, there is a, a mutual respect that I want, and I have that respect for you, and I want it back. And it just, um, it just with his, like, soft-spoken delivery, um, I, I, and, and of course Eastwood's delivery back where he's saying stuff like, you just need to get laid fucker. Like that kind of stuff. It's just, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. he's literally, so yeah, he, well. he gets some dirty, hairy lines. Oh, like, yeah. like the, that's, that's so, what's so ridiculous is that like Peterson is so good at getting you into like the seriousness on like a tonal and like a thriller and like a physical action level. 
even when he's dealing with like some genuinely pretty ridiculous stuff that's happening here, like the <laughs> opening sequence, which we kind of ran by already. But like when when Eastwood is going undercover with uh, Dylan McDermott's character, his new rookie partner, it's like a Miami Vice style, like takedown <laughs> meetup yeah. at a marina with like a counterfeiting ring run by fucking Jigsaw. Like you're immediately primed like this is like a silly movie. And then you do get just these really nasty like, you know, moments of, of violence where his where McDermott has a bag over his head and is being strangled and Eastwood, you know, you know, in order to prove that he's, you know, uh, not a rat, he does pull the trigger on his head. But then when he realizes that he's kind of won them back, he grabs his real gun, his real dirty, hairy, uh, you know, <laughs> six shot and yeah, and he fucking blasts those guys away like 90s squibs and blood mist all over the camera and stuff. Yeah. Like it's just, and what, you know. And what's interesting too is that it's used as a, a fairly, like there's there's a serious tone in, in it uh, a little bit, but like I said, he's he makes that joke about not knowing if, the, if there was an extra bullet in there, even though he knew about the weight and all of that. But then later on in the movie, they use this as a moment for Al that's very significant because he's starting to have nightmares about it and he's, you know, kind of fearful yeah, he's like, of traumatized by it yeah and then that leads to we'll talk about it of course but a <laughs> rooftop scene and all of that so it, it's it is interesting that it's played kind of in both tones a little bit in this in this moment yeah, and, and and well yeah. is is the thing Very too balanced. is like peterson real navigates it well like like right after that i think is when he's contacted by the wonderful european uh, immigrant landlady who uh, calls him to to observe the apartment of one joseph mccrawley uh which is one of the many uh fake names that john malkovich is going to go by in the film another one being booth after john wilkes booth <laughs> right. because the dude has a flair for the dramatic or the panache as uh, <laughs> Gosh, yes, he says. Yeah, uh, Malkovich says that he yeah, wants to be called Booth because he had he jumped to the stage after killing Lincoln, and he has panache. And Malkovich, like I said, he has this like, you know, like uh, I say, like queer coded uh, sense of theatricality and glamour in his evil in his evil plan to and like sort of uh, face off against a worthy opponent in Eastwood, but also like seeing in Eastwood a like a man with a kind of a similar life story of someone who has like dedicated himself to God and country and was kind of fucked over by them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, well, and, and, and we can tell immediately what kind of guy this is, because this landlady is talking about how much she believes in the beauty of America and the White House. And, you know, she's con con concerned about her tenant shrine to the presidential assassination of JFK <laughs> and Abe Lincoln. And there's even a quote printed off in the piece of paper in the apartment from the guy who killed Robert uh, Kennedy. And I also love the one newspaper clipping he has out of uh, the, where the headline is just assassins, little men with big ideas and that's the thing Clint Eastwood he's a big guy he's a big man yep. and yep. you know like these sleazy assassins they're little guys like John Malkovich that's probably, right. I don't, that's right. That, I don't think he's that small in real life but anyway but like yeah like it's once again a great contrast between the two of them yeah yeah, well, and, and Peterson's also giving it these great, like, voyeur thriller visual touches, like Malkovich spying on Eastwood, checking his room with the POV shots of looking through the binoculars across the street, or, like, that pull-out dolly to reveal him hiding in the alley where the only thing being lit are his eyes underneath, like, yeah. the street lamp directional what? lighting. Like, it's very almost, like, again, a, there's a little bit of, like, the Palma style in there when, when he's at home, or, like, leaving photos of himself from 1963 for him to find, where you get this great push 
fashion on like this photo that's like Forrest Gump style composited like <laughs> Harry Callahan into the Zapruder film. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite moments too is when uh, he's using the binoculars doing that POV shot and Clint actually looks directly at him but he can't recognize him because he's blocking his face with the binoculars themselves because he's not even that much of a disguise at that point. So I thought that that was a, a pretty interesting shot too. And and also, I, I uh, there's this amazing quality because there's some great visual stuff too. But there's also so much of this film is Eastwood and Malkovich talking on the phone. Yeah. Which apparently, when the screenwriter Jeff McGuire uh, sold the script, he thought all of that stuff was going to be cut out because he's like, it's very writerly to have these two guys exchanging dialogue for so much of the film. But Peterson was like, got him involved and was like, no, we're gonna we're gonna film this. Let's find a visually interesting way to because he's like, I loved the conversations and I could have seen how we could have got two performances out of these out of these actors, which listening to Peterson talk about it too, he said every single one of these phone calls was a live phone call between those two actors. Not a single one was like a script supervisor oh. reading lines off screen. There was no like recordings used. It was like I if didn't... you're watching Eastwood reacting to Malkovich's dialogue, that's really what he's listening to on the phone, which is just, you know, it's, it's a touch that some people just, it's a little bit of extra work, but it makes a difference when you get those slow push-ins on Eastwood's face yeah. and he's really listening to an exploding Malkovich say, hamming it up dude in the shadowy apartments that he's hanging out in with like a line like fate has brought us together Frank I can't get over the irony of you being involved in two presidential assassinations I didn't yeah. know the detail that they were like actually talking on the phone and man like you can really tell because like the, 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 this, the phone calls that he has between Malkovich where there's like the whole secret service is listening in and they're trying to like they're like keep him talking we gotta like tr trace the call or whatever all the scenes with him and Malkovich on the phone are electric. They are oh, like yeah. yes. the most riveting parts of the movie when he's like, he's like, you know what I've done for God and country? Some pretty sick and evil, some pretty sick and awful things. Yeah, and oh, I also so, yeah. love that. It's yeah. like three or four times, I think, where they do the whole like have their conversation. They trace the call. They try to get to the place that he's at and he's, you know, he's inevitably not there. Um, or at least at one time, I guess it turns into kind of a chase thing. But um, it, it's it's just yeah, it's riveting every single time, and I like that it also escalates as it goes because for most of the conversations, Malkovich's character is incredibly calm and soft spoken, and then it's I think it's at a point where he starts to feel a bit. And they get into like his CIA background, like as soon yeah, as he calls he him out on to his explode, like explode, yeah. and and it's like one of the well, first yeah. emotional scenes that he actually has where he shows emotion, and that's where they actually get a, a true trace, and they almost get him because they 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 kind of trick him into you know staying on the phone um because before he's he's, he's very intelligent and he's he's kind of calculated with when he's going to get off and 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 all of that so they it's a it's a good scene and a, and a good character development to see what well, yeah and also, I, and I was also, gonna say the key uh, like uh, oh, the, the malkovich character is like closer to what the real life version of professor jonathan hemlock would be like a cia fucking wet work guy it's like <laughs> oh yeah yes like he, he wouldn't be this like kind of like cool like fun at like sort of a bit dickish art professor he'd be like a deeply fucking psychopathic like, fucking unstable lunatic yes, yes. yeah th that's what makes it such a cool connection because yeah like he is basically playing who eastwood was playing in the Iger sanction but like what if that guy got disillusioned by the hollowness and laid. evilness of what he was asked to do like 
like, <laughs> yeah, he never like got every laid, week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and one of the cool parts, cause Jamie, you were mentioning that at a certain point, Malkovich starts freaking out and starts mm-hmm. getting like way more intense with him. It's only when the information about him starts getting more revealed because he early on, he revels in, you don't know who I am, yeah, but right. I know your entire history because it's public and because you were on TV failing at your fucking job. And the, some of the early stuff where, he has the upper hand and he's like, I'm watching your movie right now, referring to the Zapruder film. And he's <laughs> and, and he's basically like late at night when the demons come. Do you see the rifle coming out of that window or do you see Kennedy's head being blown apart? And you just get like this amazing touch uh, in the editing where there is this cross faded footage of the Zapruder film put on top of the slow zoom on Eastwood's face where his like watery eyes are like remembering that day. And that is actually a touch that listening to Peterson talk about it came from Anne V. Coates who edited this film, which is insane. The editor for Lawrence of Arabia cut this film, a real nuts and bolts (laughs) editor uh, from what Peterson said that she was basically in this era. She was the kind of editor who was like hunting to piece together every different style of take. So it would be like she'd have nine takes and she'd be like well he delivered the first half of that line better in this one and the second half better in take five and she would Damn. do the work to splice that stuff together like very that's amazing. the kind of stuff that like fincher does and he has an easier time doing it digitally but like yeah like the, the editing in this film is amazing and the other credentials on this is like ennio morricone did the score yeah john bailey who shot uh mishima and american gigolo and Ooh. cat people for paul schrader Ooh. is the cinematographer Crazy. for the film like like it's it's an un like this it's just it's, it's one of those things it's stacked absolutely in every, in stacked every, in all in caps every is my note <laughs> yeah it's, it's wild <laughs> It's yeah, and, and, and it, 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 it totally sells this stuff because on, on like one level, you could see how this could be like an unmanageably silly film or even like in, in another director's hands, this could even. be honestly even be like a forgettable spec script that's not taken to the next level. But just on every department, on a casting and on a crew level, they were like, no, we are going to push this. And so you get a, a brilliant moment of editing like that. You get Malkovich really hammering at, at Eastwood and you get Eastwood delivering one of the more emotional you know and in one of the more emotional eras of 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 his career as well but like delivering like some you know some actual you know the this this teary-eyed stares that he does while on the phone while he's listening to that stuff like, like it's, it's 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 pretty brutal and even even if sometimes it's punctuated by like a dirty hairy line like the do you have what it takes to take a bullet or is a life too precious to you and he's like well i'll be thinking about that when i'm pissing on your grave <laughs> And, you know, like, and like, you know, with Eastwood, like there's always like in his, in his film roles, there's always kind of this meta commentary on, on like his previous film personas. And the scene scene where Booth is talking to him on the phone and he's going through like uh, some like Playboy article that was like a retro 10 year retrospective where they interviewed all the agents and he starts talking about like, oh, you were, you were so honest about what your drinking did to your family. And then like when your wife and daughter left you or whatever, and then Eastwood like puts his hand over the receiver and he's like, how much more of this shit do I have to listen to? All I could think about in that scene, rewatching it is that Booth is just talking to Clint Eastwood about what he did to Sandra Locke. And he's like, I don't want to listen to this shit anymore. (laughs) 
I I lost it when they actually give one of the other actors the uh, you are too old for this shit like oh, yeah. routine. Like they actually oh. say it in dialogue at a certain point. Oh, I, 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 like, totally, I totally I totally forgot the another another great character actor in this movie, Gary Cole from Office. Space, Gary Cole, yes, plays like yes. the sort of like the the young like sort of prick like hotshot agent who hot has disdain like, for the dinosaur. Yeah, like, <laughs> but like to be fair, he's like, why is this eighty year old guy like an active duty? Like in the field, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, 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 and, like to, to be clear car. for Eastwood, he's sixty-three years old, and he is doing most of the stunt work that we see in the film, or a lot of it anyway. I, that, that big leap on the rooftop, he doesn't do. You can tell based on the wig that he's not doing that. But yeah. a lot of the like running beside the motorcade, running uh, through the streets and hitting his hip off of the car, actually hanging off that ledge, which he hangs off at one point. Like he is doing all of this at sixty-three years old, and he's putting the work in. But that is also what makes it you know more you know like less ridiculous when the characters are actually commenting on this and being like doing pranks where they're like he's having a false heart attack call on him while he's taking a snooze in the break room um, <laughs> yeah. or you know they, they, they start playing various pranks uh, on or or making comments about the ridiculousness of the age difference between Rene Rousseau and Glenn Eastwood when he's having all the various flirtatious conversations with her even though he does get some Harry Callahan style statements in there like calling her a token window dressing for the feminist vote at one point <laughs> yeah. which is something you could imagine Harry Callahan then, uh, he literally I think he literally says that in like uh, whatever the third or fourth dirty Harry is. The one like the, the time daily where they're like, what is this? It's, it's an encounter session or whatever. And then like, and then she's like, oh, what demographics do you represent? And he's like, white heterosexual jazz playing pianist over the age of 50. <laughs> or a big lobby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, but, but, but that's just it. Like, like he's, he's getting these freaky phone calls. And it freaks him out enough that he requests being back on the president's direct security detail and working the parade crowd control and running along the motorcades. And all of this stuff also looks really good. Like just the oh, spectacle yeah. of the actual like political campaigns themselves, which looking at some of the behind the scenes work that they did on this involved like actually using some shots where they had 1,000 to 1,500 extras and other shots where they were actually just compositing Bill Clinton out of the shots and putting their president in and having like Eastwood in there and, and like, like just, just some ridiculous you, you amount know, of work they were putting in. You know, there's no fucking way Eastwood would take a bullet for fucking Bill Clinton. I'm, I'm no, they got to put someone else in there. They got to put another president. in there. <laughs> he would be, he would be help. He would be helping Booth if fucking Clinton were in the white house. Yeah. 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 Heroic yeah. <laughs> But 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 like to credit Eastwood, he's playing Frank with some real pep in his step about about the job, and there is some like gags in here, like that great undressing gag dolly shot of him and Rene Russo oh, trying so to have good. a sex scene as two agents. But it's filmed entirely from like not just the suit jackets and socks hitting the floor, but like the sunglasses and walkie talkies and, and handcuffs and guns and, <laughs> and everything. And, 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 yeah, and, and it all climaxes on the damn. I got to put all that shit back on. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good joke. <laughs> There is some really funny humor in this that I that I think that's it's mostly kind of the it's in the same realm sometimes as what I think Iger section was going for, but I do find this to be a little bit more I guess uh, tasteful. Oh, it's it's, it's, it's way funnier. Yeah, it's way and, funnier and like in and like 
And Eastwood's leaning into it like yes. the, well, damn, Abe, I wish I could have been there for you, pal. And him you know, like, himself yeah. a lot of the time, I think, works a lot. Uh, he still keeps his, like, you know, macho integrity the entire time. But I, I do like, because with Iger Sanction, you know, he has the, like we were saying, the, the sarcastic remarks and all that. But he's never... You know, th- th- there's really no poking fun at Hemlock, whereas he he is able to do that with his character here, and it works well. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I I do like too that you know while he's you're getting kind of like these goofier elements of him making his way back into this job and getting a, a view of this job that he loves and all the experience he has doing it, you're getting more of these ominous phone calls from from his friend. Which which by the way, uh, if anyone wants to look it up, there is like a a great SNL skit that John Malkovich did around this time for this movie, where it's <laughs> it's literally um, his character Mitch Leary making all of these phone calls trying to get in contact with Frank but he keeps just dialing the wrong number and he keeps just you know he, he just keeps saying his gets about like halfway through his monologues before he realizes he's not talking to frank but the actual like he's talking to the copy scenes, guy it's your lyric <laughs> killing the president well and all of the and, and some of it does become ridiculous like the amount of tormenting and mocking him of for his failures where he's like the Warren Commission called your procedure seriously deficient and criticized you and the other agents for drinking and being out the night before and you know <laughs> and, and being like aren't like aren't you don't you feel like betrayed by your by your government in the same way that 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 I am don't you realize that all that's left is the game and I'm on offense and you're on defense like he's so flowery with it and the yeah. way that he talks about it it's and, and he starts exploding at certain points it's it, it's awesome but I do like when he does start to start also kind of like psychologically mess with him just beyond the words too, like that uh, rainy Chicago crowd event that they go to where like, you get the, uh, you know, like the police headlights in the wet streets and Eastwood is groggy and overwhelmed because he, he has the flu when he shows up to that event. And as the uh, he starts to kind of lose it and get sort of swept up into the paranoia and like that he could be out there willing, ready to kill the president, the stress of this job. And then the camera, the cameras are flashing and there's this dizzying shot of the actual camera itself, like spinning around and the frames start getting like step printed yeah. as he hears like a bang from the balloon and Malkovich pops one with a pin and Eastwood mishears it as a gun and announces it as a like a gun and it turns <laughs> out to obviously be this false alarm much to the embarrassment of everyone else and he gets stripped of the duty and everything like he's now he's not just mocking his ability but he's making him actively look bad and you know and that that really offends him because the only thing that he takes seriously is that you know he's good at his job even though he as we've mentioned is did the only thing you not really can do it. in your job <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, also, I also love in between all of this, we we get these like little scenes with Malkovich where he's uh, creating the gun that he's going to make okay. the entire time. So sick. And it's okay. only through these small scenes for like the next <laughs> hour and a half until all of that is revealed. And then the, he even does like, it's more of a, a campy evil scene, I would say, where there's, um he, he's kind of, he's practicing with the gun and it shows how powerful the little plastic gun that he made is. And then these hunters come up. And yeah, he, he makes like a zip gun pistol out of wood yeah. which is like what no it's it's, no, it's, it's, it's modeling plastic. plastics it's plastics he makes a, oh. he makes a, he makes a homemade plastic handgun and now we get into the part of this movie that like obsessed me when i was a kid like seeing this movie with my like we were uh, malkovich's plastic handgun in this movie and the scene with the hunters <laughs> where he just um like they, they're like hey, buddy them. they're like they're like hey buddy that the like, what well, well, get a load of that like that's you a know cool that's, gun. that's a cool looking gun <laughs> mind if i take her for a spin or whatever and they're just sitting in some park 
And he's like, sure. And they like they when the guy shoots a duck, and he's like, man, how about that? And he's like, what what do you need a gun like that for? And he just goes to kill the president. And they just look at him like, well, why'd you do? Why would you want to do that, man? They're like, why'd you kill that duck, man? And then he just domes both of them, like, and then yeah. just sort of like he has this little moment Full where he's squibs. just sitting there after he just kill, where he just kills these two guys, like just straight out. And then he just has a little sniff. He has a little sniff to himself, <laughs> sitting alone, like totally yep. unperturbed yep. in this little park, like. But no, yeah. Malkovich's plastic gun in that movie was like as mind blowing to me and my friends as like the opening scene of Last Boy Scout, which asks the posits the question: <laughs> What if a football player just used a gun on it like a kickoff return? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one of the best moments ever when that football player just pulls out that gun, and caps another dude while he's running at the other end. Oh, so, so good. good, so good. Well, yeah, and and this whole backstory of him being like a model maker, yeah. and you know, like and the the wet boy assassin who's you know been involved in like the contras and they're like well they're like all kinds of <laughs> crazy shit that they um give him and it does lead to you know as he starts uncovering his identity as we've mentioned the phone calls get a little bit more tough he starts freaking out about what he's done for god and country and he does deliver the great line i have a rendezvous oh, with death and so does the president and so do you frank and he's like you have a rendezvous with my ass motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> just so amazing good. delivery it's from so clint oh my god yeah which leads to a great little rooftop <laughs> chase that contains one of the most amazing moments in the film where Eastwood is hanging from the ledge like Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo, which he really did on this real location, not a blue screen. That is it like a real. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. a, yeah, like an actual couple stories. He's hanging off. That's a 63 year old man like hanging on for his life. <laughs> like, yeah, you can see real. that on screen. Yeah. That's yeah, like nuts. pretty amazing just to watch. And also the incredibly silly detail that, you know, he's barely hanging on for his life. Malkovich extends him his hand and he's like, it, it's literally that moment at the end of the Iger section where it's like this, this guy wants to kill me. But at the same time, I need to rely on him for a, my immediate physical safety survival. And Clint Eastwood pulls a gun on him while Mac Malkovich is trying to lift him up, which is an insane gesture. And, and then what does Malkovich, Malkovich do? What, oh, man. He, he puts the gun in his mouth oh, and yeah. smiles. He's like, fucking blow me away. We're both going down. Yeah, he's, which like, he, apparently, he's like, you can guarantee that the president will not be assassinated if you just pull the trigger on me right now and we both die. But he's like, are you willing to trade yes. your life for the president's? And it's like, well, no, yeah. he, he, he doesn't at that point. But it's a great, it's, God, it's a great scene. And that was like, God, like what? What? A, like Malkovich, like he changed the villain game in this movie, because like, yeah. like, like that, because like you know, like new, nor, normally, like you get a villain who's like as tough and badass and intimidating as 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 the lead. But man, like, like again, I gotta say, like the kind of queer coded nature of Malkovich's character, where he just like to show how committed, like, to show how like next level he is when he just opens his mouth and swallows the <laughs> gun that Clint put in his face and grins at him. Oh. God damn! Yeah. It's like it's just yeah. He, Wait, not, right he before switching his life too precious, like it's just like yeah. yes. it's unreal. And it also yeah. kind of implies too that he knows like th that. I, I think Eastwood's character wants the redemption in front of people as well. I, th I think it kind of subtly implies that because there is a spectacle to the yeah. to the whole thing. It, the, 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 all, the dream is that you take that bullet in front of a crowd and you dive in front of the bullet even, for the president. It even you know? speaks <laughs> to the ending a little bit. And, you know, he is played as like he's annoyed. Uh, and I, I guess spoilers and we'll get some more detail. But it is kind of played that he's like annoyed at his fame when he inevitably 
does do what he's set out to do. But but he is in front of everybody and he doesn't really take that bullet until that point. And like we have been discussing, he could have just shot him right in the head right there. And yeah, it could have been over right life, here. But but that is the whole implication. He's, he's supposed to give his life yeah. over for the president. But then, so, like, yeah, uh, the, it's interesting. The, the news story the next day, no one would find out about the assassination plan. Like the news story, if yeah. the Washington Post covered it all, would be like ancient Secret Service agent falls off building. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and while we're still on this moment, I just wanted to highlight too that. So apparently Peterson and Eastwood, this, this moment was not at all scripted that John Malkovich did. He was just Whoa. in the fucking zone that and he just bad. did it. And, 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 and when like, he smiles, when he smiles in that moment, that is apparently because Clint Eastwood started laughing because he had no idea how to respond to what he was watching. He's like, I can't improvise past this, man. This is some evil yeah, and, shit. And, 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 and Peterson was like, that's the best thing I've ever seen. I was, he was stoked that he got that take because it made him laugh and just the weirdness and like the natural zone that Malkovich kind of found him in in that moment. And, and it does create a bit of like a weird whiplash when then he brutally executes McDermott with a oh, shot yeah. to the head like seconds later. Just moments Moments after Eastwood talked him out of, you know, he's like, my my rookie partner is PTSD riddled. He's talking yeah. about quitting and he says, stop that cockamamie bullshit. And immediately in the next scene, he he gets that dude fucking killed uh, and, you know, once, makes that dude's once, wife a widow. Once McDermott <laughs> starts talking about his wife and kids, like about a third of the way through the movie, you're like, ooh, you're not making it to the end credits. <laughs> we, yeah, we need to uh, have, uh, Frank needs more motivation. I'm sorry. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. Al. Yeah, sorry, but, sorry but, but we should pivot towards the finale here, I think, yeah. <laughs> uh, which uh, takes place at a campaign donor event in Los Angeles in this very slick, very modern glass and steel location. It's another thing Peterson's really good at with the location work and with the sets and stuff. And there's lots of great low angle shots looking up at the building, uh, which eventually set up the uh, final confrontation, we'll say, in this building, like through the glass. Um, but there's a great scene in here of Malkovich getting into the disguise in his hotel room yeah. in, in L.A., where he's like, slapping his belly in the mirror and crossfading over him, changing the details of his face with like a fake nose and, and ears and loading the bullets into his keychain so that he can later, you know, get that through the metal metal detector. There is like a, an emphasis on procedure here mm -hmm. that apparently some of it was the real involvement of the secret service who were, you know, a, a lot of them are absolutely paranoid freaks also that were like, <laughs> well, here's how say, the guy would try to do it. Here's our invention <laughs> of like the guy who would do it. I mean, it's, <laughs> Incredible because I gotta say, uh, 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 Booth Malkovich's plan to kill the president in this movie is pretty good. It's pretty goaded. Like, it is. And, yeah, you know, yeah. he, he gets so time, close. He gets so close too. And that's the other thing. I don't know about you, but even when I first saw this movie, I was basically rooting for Malkovich the entire time. I don't, I don't know if that's just me, but like I was sort of like disappointed when his plan no, is, there is foiled. Some, I will say there's there's some excitement to watching the procedure of what like is he going to get it with? Like obviously oh, they yeah. they punctuate it with moments where he's an absolute fucking psycho freak who will just snap the necks of these two uh, random women, which was right. actually so brutal uh, that they cut it from the European release of the film because it was oh, just wow. actually upsetting that they didn't like hearing the neck cracks and and. And Malkovich said they should have put the they should have put the scene back in where he kills the dog too, but they were like that's <laughs> that's too much. <laughs> wow, they killed the 
dog too. That's fucking wild. <laughs> they, they, they did everything. So you contrast that with the cross cutting of the minutia of the secret service who are like sweeping the sewers and setting up their sharpshooters and the surveillance cameras and the televisions and everything and going Eastwood style, dirty Harry with like, just like assaulting the bellboy at one point, <laughs> all the standard stuff that the secret service I'm sure does. Um, <laughs> But that that last bit does get him taken off duty once again, not to embarrass the president. And there's this amazing scene where he's in the suite with Rene Russo, who delivers him the bad news that they're like, look, we know you helped get try to make this event safe, uh, but you're being fired once again because you're <laughs> a fucking crazy man. And he delivers this really terrific monologue about all of his regrets from you know, the the JFK assassination where he's like, you know, for years now, I've listened to all these idiots on bar stools with their pet theories on Dallas, how it was Cubans or the CIA or white supremacists or the mob. And whether there was one weapon or whether there was five, none of that's meant too much to me because it's leery questioning me on whether I had the guts to take that fatal bullet. God, that was a beautiful day. The sun was out. You know, everything's been raining. And the first shot sounded like a firecracker. I looked over. I saw him. I could tell he was hit. I don't know why I didn't react. I should have reacted. I should have been running flat out. I just couldn't believe it. And he's, you know, he, he Eastwood is just like absolutely going for it. It's the slow push in on, you know, his and, and he 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 is like tearing up and he does by the end of this just kind of like outright cry in this scene which i was like kind of mind blown by because i was like how many times have we actually seen clint eastwood cry in yeah, in a movie actually like it's it, like, it's crazy that it's for this like pulpy thriller that he's done that he's delivering this monologue um which i eventually found out by watching this interview with peterson that eastwood really did break down and cry and it was because of this moment of directing that he gave where um, uh, it was uh, corroborated in the vulture obituary on Peterson um, and on his director's commentary that he gives as well, where basically uh, quoting from that vulture article reportedly unbeknownst to Eastwood himself, director Peterson told Rene Russo to gently grab the actor's hand off camera during a key point in the monologue, which prompted this rare display of emotion <laughs> and resulted in this moment where he actually does like look away from the camera and just start crying by the end of the monologue, which is like not, and you could tell it was a real thing because that's not what you're time. supposed to do. And he's just like, yeah. Oh my like God <laughs> breaks down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Peterson and Renee Russo made Clint Eastwood cry for the first time in his life. And <laughs> in it was captured life. on wow. camera in this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and just like, to reiterate, uh, touch of a woman. Uh, just to reiterate, so as well, Rene Russo is wonderful in this movie because she was like, oh yeah, so good. Was, she was like, you know, like like what, like she was like a '90s babe, you know, like she was in so many movies, so many great movies in the '90s, and she's fantastic in this. And it's just like, even though like like yeah, like the like I don't know the 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 creakiness, you know, like it's it's played for laughs because like he's so much older than her, and it's like like obviously inappropriate, but like she succumbs to his his obvious charms, you know, like I, I, I thought right. the love, the love, the love story between him and Renee Russo, I thought were great. I thought, I, I thought he, like the chemistry between the two of them, I thought really, there's worked. an adult sensitivity yeah, to it. That's yeah. de definitely there. Like, like when she eventually grabs his hand and it pulls out to that wide shot of those two in the presidential suite, you know, her just having seen this real display of like this guy who is just, you know, like this tragic moment with this guy who's being completely open with her. And, you know, like it, there's, there's something there that does, does I kind of I think elevate it when it gets into you know uh, when it tries to get back into the final set piece stuff that is just uh, kind of insane 
where like yeah. Frank he gets fired and he, you know, starts going back into the off duty investigating where he connects Leary to the bank where he killed uh, the, that new accounts teller. And we find out that he did so that so he could make a high profile di- donation and get into the donor dinner party. And there's this really exciting cross cutting watching Eastwood put these pieces together seeing Malkovich come into play exactly as he planned everything, like bypassing the metal detector, piecing his gun together underneath the fancy tablecloth. Like all of the editing in this is just amazing as you're watching these two things go back and forth and just the refusal to limit the spectacle of the politics as well, despite the danger. They're just like, yeah, he's going to get killed at this donor party, by the way. They're like, no, we don't care. It's it's too important that he goes to this L.A. uh, donor party. Yeah. And it eventually climaxes in that incredible close-up followed by the point of view zoom shot from Eastwood barging into the dinner party, looking at that seating chart to be like, where is Malkovich in here? And and just the sweat and him using his finger along the thing to figure out exactly where he is. And then he looks up and that zoom where he just sees Malkovich, the gun underneath the cloth, ready to John Wilkes booth, the president right then and there. And that amazing slow-mo dive of just redemption. Oh, yeah. Takes yes. that shot for the president. <laughs> yeah. So fucking good. And it's wild <laughs> that right after that too, the, uh, Malkovich just turns around and blasts one of the agents, like a nameless agent yeah. in the chest and just like full on. It's squib. a really violent movie. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. The full on squibs. And that, like we were mentioning earlier, the, um, the, the plastic gun, the power of this thing is almost like it's a shotgun, but it's just the size of a pistol. They, they, they put so yeah. much emphasis on the power of it. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, it's, it's still not over yet. There's one last sequence yes. where, uh, it is a glass elevator hostage situation with this really gorgeous sunset, sort of like matte painting backdrop because they couldn't get the right angles to shoot this for real. Even though we have seen shots of this elevator where they re- were really shooting in the elevator, but they had to reconstruct it for this last sequence between the two of them where, uh, to get this really moody lighting that they wanted, especially because yeah. there's that bit where Malkovich is like striking out all the light bulbs and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, so that the, uh, sharpshooters can't tell which figure is, which they look silhouetted from the outside. Um, but there's also uh, this great moment in here where he's like, Frank, do you believe in the nobility of suicide? And he's like, no. But if you want to <laughs> blow your goddamn head off, go ahead. Be my guest. <laughs> I don't know you shit. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right to the very end. Just kind of being an asshole to this guy, uh, even though the he guy never, is like never trying to work with respect. like a little bit of camaraderie. He can't get no respect from Clint Eastwood this whole movie. You know, try yeah. as he may. Like he just like just at the wants very some end. goddamn gratitude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and there's also this really cool aspect in the editing where he's technically having conversations with Rene Russo and Malkovich at the same time. He still has his like earpiece, yeah. Yeah, this is another one of these touches that it just it feels like someone would forget to do this. But like being able to cut between him having the conversation with Malkovich and also coding his language in his conversation so that it can be read as orders to Rene Russo, who he's trying to talk through how to get him out of this situation. Like it's just again, it's, it's the thrill of the job of making its way into the craft of the movie in a way, which is something that, you know, is is uh, always welcome and, and elevates a, a, a movie like this. And yeah, when, when he just like bends down, he's just like 
shut up and shoot. And Aim he's high. saying it to both of them <laughs> because it, because it works just in time for Malkovich monologuing about, you know, he's uh, like, I made you their, like, you'd just be another broken yeah. down, like piano playing asshole. Like you've forgotten about, but like, I took you out. Of, I took you out of the fucking back room of the secret service. I put you on the news. Like me killing you is going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. And then Eastwood's just well, like, yeah, so shoot, damn it. Shoot. And then like, right at the very end, he goes, aim high. And that's when Malkovich realizes what's going on. But you bastard. Yeah. I redeemed yeah. your pathetic, shitty life. Yeah, well, and, yeah. And, and he also he also does make an interesting point, which is that like in order for you to be really good at the at your job in the way that you want to be, like I need to exist. Like I I serve a purpose. You like, need I, me assassinating yeah. that president. You, you, you want yeah. me on that exactly. grassy knoll. You need me on that grassy right. knoll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, and it does do get to do a really nice reversal where Malkovich, after the sharpshooters take the shot, is the one hanging off the ledge after. Uh, that and he Eastwood is the one who has to offer his hand. And he says, you really want to save me, Frank? He's like, to be honest with you, no, but it's my job. <laughs> you know, I'm going to, you know, life is precious. Still I believe in lifting respect. you up. <laughs> no. And Malkovich falls to his death in this incredible low angle uh, dummy shot of just this person falling all the way down cracking the glass and his corpse just lying there as Eastwood rides that elevator down looking at him too which is just like an incredible yeah. image as well and they do like just the a, connection of shots is awesome because you have Malkovich's body just you know right into the broken glass and you see the elevator start to go down and then it cuts to Eastwood and then cuts back to Malkovich's face just dead like center in the camera zoomed in it's awesome it's really good yeah, yeah. And uh, other than one last scene where him and Rene Russo go back to the Washington Monument where they spend a little bit of time earlier in the film and listen to that voicemail. Yeah, that yeah sent really, really good. Like the very last scene is like Eastwood is officially retired from the Secret Service agent because he's like, well, you and the media put my put my damn photo <laughs> everywhere. So I'm done for undercover work. And I'm too damn totally famous. Not I'm certainly not taking a bullet for a Democrat president. No, he didn't say that. Yeah. But like, uh, like, so like uh, him and Rene Russo, like, you know, like they're, they're, you know, like their relationship has officially blossomed and like, you know, they're in love with each other and they go back to Clint's apartment and it's like empty, his sort of like bachelor pain hole that he's been living in for the past 40 years. And yes. they're like, oh, you, you have one voice message and like on the answering machine and it's Booth leaving like recorded one last message to him and he's like, Hey, so like, just uh, don't know what happened. At least one of us is dead. But I just want to say, um, <laughs> it's it's been it's been really fun working with you. And uh, I guess I guess you know you'll know what happened by this point, or you won't because you'll be dead. But I knew just yep. just yeah. bye. Well, well, and, also like and 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 also it's the uh, I worry that you don't have a life to get on with after our game is over. Yes, You're a good man, now. and good men like you and me are destined to walk a lonely road. As he so walks goodbye out the door and good luck, Lily. So yeah. yeah, it's a nice little touch. But I do, yeah, I do that love Morricone that. Like, theme one of us kicking is dead. back. In. How you doing, man? Oof. It was nice working with you. It's a great little message. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, really great stuff and if we are pivoting i think towards the reductive rating round this got a very very solid four for me honestly yeah. like just again very sturdy very well made post 
uh, Oliver Stone's JFK cat and mouse assassination thriller. I do like uh, that we touched on a little bit, but like the detective element of it, where you do have a little bit of, you know, you've got some voyeur stalker set pieces. You've got John Malkovich doing master of disguise shit in this. You've got like a Hitchcock uh, rooftop chase in this thing. Like it's so it, like it's pretty pulpy and exciting in that way. And also, again, I think the thing that really elevates this, obviously, other than like such an an incredible crew like like Peterson who's already skilled at the clockwork mechanics of shooting something like this and Paul Schrader DP John Bailey who's doing awesome steady cam maneuvering and the the lonely voyeuristic compositions he's doing Anvi Coates Ennio Morricone like other than that it also just gives like a really nice cathartic arc for this main secret service agent and it is like it's similar to Air Force One like it's a complete fantasy in a way it's like this guy wants the second he wants that redemption he's like I'm an old guy who wishes as I took the bullet. I never took the bullet. Well, let's introduce this younger, thwarted, former CIA crazy dude who is sort of a mirror image to you who's going to torment you like a ghost, but at the same time, he's going to give you your second shot and literally your second shot <laughs> and your chance to take it in the chest. You have one and shot. Do, just, do not miss your chance to blow the president's head off. <laughs> at, absolutely. Like, it, like, 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 that's actually just like a good concept for a movie and Eastwood and Malkovich together it's it's an unreal energy between Eastwood being weary and you know being a, a dinosaur lost out of time and Malkovich who is just full on stalker or stalko stalko stalker <laughs> psycho method acting tongue twister there oh yeah um, and just maniacally you know belittling him and all the mm-hmm. phone call conversations are amazing and yeah this is just like a, a really great. Th- thriller elevated at every level by um, all the various choices that were made by by Peterson and, and Coates and, and, and Bailey and uh, yeah some great dirty hairy one-liners in here it's the platonic ideal of like a like a cable classic film where it, it feels like it's destined for that because of the script and it, yeah. where it came from but yeah just on like a pure filmmaking level it everyone nailed it like i i was i was kind of tearing up watching eastwood's monologues which i feel like you just shouldn't be happening in a movie where you know john malkovich is like swallowing a gun because it's funny you know it's just it, those are two things that i feel like just shouldn't mix together but they they absolutely do so this is a very solid four for me yeah yeah me too um peterson's direction is unbelievably sturdy it's just it's it's fantastic even there's scenes in here where it's like you're only meeting characters just so that they can get to the next step of the plot but just because it's it's so well directed you don't really feel like it's it's bloated in any way like this is a two-hour film but and there is some some scenes that you'd think aren't incredibly important just especially compared to like the stuff with Eastwood and Malkovich um but no, it's, it's kind of leisurely but yeah, you like that stuff too yeah absolutely <laughs> um and so I think like hats off to Peterson for that that's that's a incredible and it's incredibly well shot like Bailey just shoots the hell out of it uh, Eastwood and Malkovich uh, uh, going up against each other is amazing. Specifically, Malkovich. If you if you're a fan of Malkovich and you haven't seen this movie, you have to. This is top tier uh, performance from him. It's it's unbelievable. And I, I just wanted to include one scene. 
uh, that uh, it, we mentioned the scene, but not the moment um, where Al gets shot and they do this awesome suspense where it shows Frank actually looking at the rooftop and not being able to see him because he was flung to the balcony. And so you get this shot where he's like waiting to see uh, who shot who first, whether it be Malkovich's character or Al. And then Al's body just like falls over the edge and um, you see like the bullet hole in his head. And then Malkovich, just to be sure, shoots him again. Uh, yes. and, and Clint Eastwood <laughs> looks into Al's eyes as he is just deadened. And it's, it's fucking, it's so cold. It's just, it's unreal. So creepy. Um, yeah, That's this good. is really good. A, re- a really good film. So four out of five for me. Hell yeah. Once again, we, uh, we find ourselves in complete uh, accordance here. Our strongest possible four. This yeah. is a movie that like I fucking loved when I first saw it. Like this is a, was a classic of my childhood. This is a movie I like every time I see it. If it's on TV, I'll just keep watching it. This is a movie that, like, I just it 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 holds. It is held up for so long, and it it just gets better every time I watch it. Like there is there is no aspect of this movie that is lacking. Like it just it is just mm-hmm. a it's a, it's a it's a five. It's just a every aspect of the production, the performances, the the, the screenwriting is just is flawless. It's like I said, I think it's one of the best thrillers in the nineties. This is a strongest possible four for me. Nice. Hell yeah. Yeah. And my, my last note that we didn't hit here before we left, uh, the white house set used in this film was the set for Ivan Reitman and Kevin Klein's 1993 comedy. Dave, 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 just feel like I threw that out there. They used the same white house set because they had already constructed it for that film. And they were like, well, I guess we could have our president use that one too. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Yes. And, and also for anyone out there who really liked in the line of fire and are looking for more of Eastwood's relationship to the presidency, uh, I cannot recommend more, uh, enough absolute power which is like his adaptation of one of those shitty airport paperback thrillers and is basically like a clinton crime family de palma movie where he's a professional cat burglar robbing a rich dude's mansion and just happens to come across gene hackman playing bill clinton essentially hiding in the closet uh while he witnesses him having an affair and try to sexually assault and then murder uh this this girl that he brings home and and the whole cover-up for it and Clint Eastwood does some master of disguise shit in that yeah, film as well and calls the president on uh, mustaches. It's that, great. That bit when he calls the president a heartless whore, <laughs> like just so, yeah. so good. In, incredible stuff. So uh, if you haven't seen that, uh, I'd recommend it's a good follow up for in the line of fire. Yeah, but I think that I is going to wrap it up for movie too. Anyway, Yes, that's true. Uh, but I think that is going to wrap it up for everything this week. That was the Iger sanction from 1975, as well as In the Line of Fire from 1993. Thanks so much, Will, for for joining us yeah, and for talking you. about uh, Eastwood with us. Uh, this is the part of the show where we usually have you plug whatever's going on. And I think you have like a pretty big thing going on right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe some people who listen to a movie <laughs> podcast would be interested in. Uh, listeners, do you enjoy movie podcasts in which the host discuss <laughs> a, uh, a, a double feature, Grindhouse style, link? by either director or actor no i am uh, I, I, I i it's we're rolling it out the new chapo miniseries movie mindset is finally coming we're we're launching the chapo movie podcast hell yeah uh, same patreon but it'll be uh patreon exclusive only it'll be uh it just uh, 
it, you know, you know, you already know the deal. It's a movie podcast. It's the Chapo Movie Podcast, but it's going to be myself and Hessa <laughs> Denny from Seeking Derangements, uh, just uh, talking about some movies. It's going to start out with a mini series, but we've got a lot of plans for this. Like, uh, it'll come back. Like, I think we're going to do the first ten episodes are probably going to be out in May, but then I would like to expand this and bring it back for like October and do a run of horror movies, and just it'll be like an ongoing, just sort of uh, like the, the the Chapo Movie Podcast brand is now officially like under the movie mindset banner it's all available at the chapel patreon and if you're a fan of my thoughts on movies or hessa and her thoughts on movies we're bringing them together movie mindset the podcast and if you listen to the show you should be a fan of hessa and hessa's thoughts on movies so absolutely go and check that out like that is that is a meeting of the minds (laughs) yes Yes, we can definitely uh, recommend that our listeners go and check that out. But for our listeners, we are going to be back in uh, one week's time where uh, we are going to be over on the Patreon feed. Yeah. uh, Continuing the last two weeks where we we talked a little bit of Oliver Stone two weeks ago. We talked a little bit of Clint Eastwood this week. Uh, so next week over on the Patreon, I figured we we have to do it. it. It's perfectly been set up for us. Yeah, it really has. We are going to be talking about uh, two films about the life of uh, being a podcaster or a radio host. That's right. Uh, we're going to be talking about Clint Eastwood's directorial debut film, Play Misty for Me, from 1971, co-starring himself and Jessica Walter. Definitely uh, sort of like the Iger Sanction, one of the more sort of like interesting curiosities of his career, not necessarily one of his best ones, but it is cool to see the his very first attempt at directing. And with all the Uh, raving fans that we have, it's very relatable for us. You know, yeah, it is. It, it is basically his version of the King of Comedy before the <laughs> King of Comedy was it was a thing. She's gonna psycho fan after the male disc jockey Clint Eastwood. Uh, but we are going to be pairing that with the 1988 film Talk Radio, directed by Oliver Stone and starring. Uh, I think what a lot of people will now know him from the movie Uncut Gems, uh, Eric Bogosian, who yeah. actually also wrote the play that the film is based on and co-wrote the script for the film as well. So it was a character that he uh, conceived of uh, him himself, where he plays basically like a like a shock jock radio host. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Who ends up kind of he's good at eccentric being, uh, characters, like with that one that we um, what was that the title of the movie that we discussed with him, and he's playing that like crazy director that's also kind of a murderer. <laughs> oh, uh, special effects. Yeah, with yeah. Uh, Larry Cohen. That'll be that'll be interesting to see him do something like that again. I mean, I know it's not as like crazy or a slasher in that sense, but just a, an eccentric kind of shocking character. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's definitely a little bit more grounded than that, but yeah. like yeah, his 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 personality is very aggressive mm-hmm. uh and it creates an an audience base that he attracts that is uh maybe a little bit unhinged and starts to threaten him. Oh, and okay. it's, a, it's a very interesting film and you know, it's uh we'll we'll talk about that next week, but I can't remember Jamie, have you seen Talk Radio? No, no. I it's it's Okay, but I don't I don't want to say anything more cuz I don't want to spoil it. Yeah, it's one of those films that I have almost watched like a thousand times and I just haven't yet. So I, I'm stoked to watch it. That's perfect. Well, I'm I'm excited because honestly, it's one of my favorite Oliver Stone films uh, up there Sweet. with uh, like JFK and Born on the Fourth of July and I'm trying to think what else is kind of up. I like up, Plat- up Platoon as well. I still for Platoon, I think. Yeah, Platoon strong. Yeah. Um, but in uh, two weeks' time, we are going to be back with a special guest where we are going to be talking about uh, the man Weird Al Yankovic Hell for yeah. the first time. 
We're going to be talking about his 1989 film, UHF, where he plays the manager of a television channel. Uh, Moving on, we're going from radio to TV right into it. You'd almost think that we planned all this, but not necessarily. (laughs) Um, And uh, we're going to be pairing that film with another uh, sort of TV-related genre film. We're going to be talking about Stay Tuned from 1992, directed by... Peter Hyams, who oh, directed yeah. Sudden Death. We kind of, we, we've kind of opened up the floodgates for Peter Hyams. So we're going to be talking about a little bit more Peter Hyams. And, and honestly, this is one of his kind of weird uh, curiosities um, as, as well, which uh, <laughs> involves like... I don't even know, like like a like disappearing into a game show and like a Ooh. like a home entertainment like a the new world of home entertainment systems and it's just it's literally like, like people existing inside like parody TV channels and having to actually like survive their way out of them. That like it's like awesome. reality TV is the idea, but it's like what if you got like sucked into your TV a little bit? Cool. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> awesome. So yeah, that's what we are going to be talking about in two weeks' time over on the main feed so look forward to that but that being said that does wrap it up for everything this week thanks so much for listening and keep it sleazy keep it sleazy everybody